Welcome back to another episode of the Sunday Puncher Podcast. My name is Angelo. I am your host. I got Tom here with me. And if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you are probably predict able to predict what the takes are going to be. What happened last night, at least last night for those of you who live in the UK, but the majority of you are in the United States. So what happened yesterday afternoon? Dillian White got knocked out. And I would think that you would expect us to come in here and gloat. And you know what? We're not going to do that because we're bigger than that. Dillian White, uh, he got knocked out pretty brutally by Alexander Povetkin. And um, I want to first ask you, Tom, you know, did you see this live? Oh, no. Unfortunately, I did not. Um, This was... Now, what could uh, have possibly been more important to you than... You know, being at your TV or your your laptop, however you watch the stream, watching this significant fight in the heavyweight division, I'm, you know, this was according to possibly, I think it was, um, Mike Coppinger said this, that this was the most, this is the first significant fight since the pandemic began, which we all know is a complete bullshit line, but it was significant enough. We're not doubting that. So I'm real curious. What, what had you missed this fight? Well, first, I'm not going to knock Coffinger and the brand partnership between Dazen and The Athletic. I mean, he's got to put food on the table. Hey, I uh, can't knock him for that. Yeah, don't knock the hustle. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the – so it was uh, first date night uh, that my wife and I have had since the pandemic started. Uh, Baby Dermol, when the pandemic was uh, getting underway, was just getting to be old enough. We were going to get a babysitter and go out. And we were, we were literally in the just just planning to do that, like about a week away from from mm-hmm. going out on a date without him, like in terms of a babysitter, like not leaving him with family. But, you know, where where we could uh, we try, you know, we're OK with a babysitter. He's all old right. Enough. Cut He's to the part where you found shots. out. Anyway, uh, so we were um, getting the check and it was the moment, you know, it was like the moment where it's like, OK, we can like actually look at our phones now. And I found out and it was about an hour after it happened which was the worst way to find out about it because all the reactions I was getting online were like people who weren't reacting emotionally to when it would happen. They were like looking back on it in hindsight. were like, Oh, of course this, you know, it was like none of what you want to see, which is like, the, Oh shit, you know, reaction gifts, emojis, whatever. It was, uh, just the, everyone saying afterwards, they, they knew it was going to, ha- you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. everyone afterwards saying they knew it was going to happen. So what about you though? What was, uh, Look, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I thought Alexander Povetkin had no chance in this fight. You know, I, I don't have the highest opinion of Dillian White whatsoever. I think for, for, for what it's worth, Dillian White is a B-level fighter at best, never will touch the world level, uh, or at least I should say never will touch the elite level at the heavyweight division. I thought, you know, he didn't deserve that fight, even his first fight with Anthony Joshua. I thought that that was a, a poor matchup on their part. But you know what? Dillian White's an entertaining enough guy. You know, that gift that everybody uses or the little clip of him saying, let's go, you know, I'm, I'm down with all of that. Not down with the storyline of how he deserved the shot at the, the WBC title, blah, blah, blah. So, but I thought he had no, I thought he, or I thought Povetkin had no chance. And I'm sitting there watching that fight. I see Povetkin go down twice. And I said, I know this story before. Dillian White's about to, you know, 12 this guy. And for what it's worth, I, I thought... I, I, I wasn't even scoring the fight, but I was very real. I thought 
possibly Dillian White could have won every round up until that point. And, you know, we've seen this play out with Alexander Povetkin before where, like, again, the Vladimir Klitschko fight, not to make a comparison between Dillian White and Vladimir Klitschko, by the way, but in the Klitschko fight, Povetkin, you, you can drop the guy. He'll just keep coming, okay? And um, and then he knocked him out. And I was like, oh, my God. I cannot believe this. I called some people. I'm like, are you watching this? Because the violence of that knockout, it wasn't that Dillian White lost the fight. It was the, the manner in which he was knocked out, which was startling. I mean, he, he, he was lifeless as he hit the canvas. You know, the referee had to, like, physically move him, you know, to make sure that the guy was going to be okay. Now, obviously, and thankfully, Dillian White was okay. And, you know, it is heavyweight boxing. One punch changes everything. But my God, the, the, the thing is, and this is the, the what I want to discuss here, is like, You've watched it, you've looked at it, um, you've watched the fight, you and I, based off of what we've seen, okay, was that a lucky shot, or do you think Alexander Povetkin set Dillian White up for that? Well, give it the benefit of hindsight, strong qualifier, because like I said, I knew the outcome prior. It seemed completely uh, set up. I mean, it's still dramatic, it's still an incredibly hard punch, Uh you know, huge knockout. So that's never expected. But White, uh, you know, I was saying this, having already known the outcome and having watched the clip about a thousand times, so I was editing, editing a clip to post on Reddit tomorrow, like you saw Vetkin making moves and White kept flaring his elbow out. And right before the knockout happens, he makes a move. White flares his elbow out. Uh, Povetkin makes a move on the opposite side that White isn't expecting, slips the undercut up under and it's over i mean to the extent that he could do that and you know land an uppercut that's set up i think the part where it seems you know where it's extraordinary and like people are calling it knockout of the year is that he fell you know went down like a dead body and didn't like move well, the, for the, 30 seconds the afterwards. effect of the shot really yeah to put it succinctly that he set up and landed the shot seems reasonable it was more the effect of the shot that's the drama I mean, the, the the last time, at least in the heavyweight division, where we saw somebody just measure out a shot, call their shot, land it, and then have that sort of reaction, because I'm not saying that this doesn't happen, but with the kind of impact, would have be would have been Wilder's knockout of Luis Ortiz, where it's like, okay, right. that had Wilder to have been planned yeah. for quite a while, because it was just so perfectly land, landed, and, um, you know... I don't think it was a lucky shot whatsoever. I mean, I think it was Jermel Charlo who, in an interview, was one of them. Somebody talked about a lucky shot. I think it was uh, Jermel about the Lubin fight. And he said, like, if I throw a punch, I intended to throw that punch. Which, you know, for, for us, like, for the viewer, I think you could definitely take the perspective that, like, these guys aren't calculated. They're just throwing punches and maybe not thinking about everything. But, like, I, I think that is not giving them enough credit. These guys that we see in the ring, and I'm going to include Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin in this, these guys are the best in the world at what they do. Now, there are levels to the, the guys who compete. Certainly, you know, there's a big difference between Tyson Fury and both Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin. I don't think these guys could win more than a couple of rounds off of Tyson Fury. But in the world, these guys are extraordinary. And I don't think Dillian White or Alexander Povetkin is really in the ring doing anything out of just sheer, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here and just tossing a punch. That's, that is not what what's happening. These guys 
are calculating and they're making all these little small tiny adjustments, some more than others. And, uh, you know, you got to give credit to Alexander Povetkin. You know, the funniest thing. So if you've listened to this podcast a long time, you know that there was a guy whose name is Jason who used to be on the podcast with me. And um, Jason, his role in the podcast, despite following boxing very closely, uh, his role was to be the everyman kind of guy. You know, Jason didn't come on here and try to flaunt his knowledge. Uh, And he texted me before the fight, and he doesn't usually text me before fights. Uh, We don't talk super frequently, although we do still talk. And um, every time Crawford fights, he texts me. He's his favorite fighter. But anyway, he, he texted me, and he was like, so, Dillian White has no shot here, right? And so, he's not following boxing that closely anymore. And to him, the last time he followed boxing very closely, Alexander Povetkin was, you know, this former Olympic gold medalist. His only loss was to Vladimir Klitschko. But all, outside of that, Vlad, uh, Alexander Povetkin was still a killer in these ring. Or in the ring. Not... Not literally, but, you know, Alexander Povetkin was still one of the best heavyweights in the world. And at the time, you know, you could have mentioned him in the same sentence as Deontay Wilder. And you would have laughed at the notion that Deontay Wilder would be anywhere near as good and able to accomplish what Alexander Povetkin had (laughs) in his career. And Dillian White was the guy who got knocked out by Anthony Joshua brutally, having not been heard of before at that point in time. So he texted me, he's like, so Dillian White has no shot here, right? And I said, actually, Alexander Povetkin has no shot here. He's the guy who is old. He's been beaten. We know what the score is. And Dillian White's the kind of guy that, you know, if he lands his left hook, the fight's going to be over. And so he texts me after the fight. Like, uh, I don't remember what he said, but just something along the lines was just like, wow, you know. And, but, you know, back to the original question, was it lucky? Absolutely not. Um, what... Was it lucky that it went down like this, that it registered the way it did and that that people around boxing had the reaction that they did? I don't think that that was lucky either. I think Dillian White set himself up for, a, you know, one of the biggest comeuppances in all of boxing. Like, I can't imagine um, anyone in the sport losing that would have this sort of effect. I mean, Dillian White, for the most part, is like, just seen as like the, you know, there's every, you know, Wilder has his fan base, AJ has his fan base, and Tyson Fury has his fan base. And then there are people who like Ty- Dillian White, certainly people who respect Dillian White, but they're not like, you know, as rabid as the three big guys. And those three, you know, the three fan bases of Joshua, Fury, and Wilder really came and poured it on Dillian White. And, you know, it, it made for a lot of funny stuff on Twitter, but ultimately, you know, it's the kind of stuff that if you're Dillian White, you know, that kind of sucks. And luckily, we're all going to forget this in a few days anyway. So, I mean, having said all that, where do you – where if you're Dillian White, where do you go next? I think he'll still get fights. But, I mean, just, just to, to back up for one second about whether we should have seen it coming. I mean, the lucky punch thing I think we already addressed. But, you know, White – has been hovering around, you know, in the top 10 at heavyweight for a while. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny flashback to like 2015 or whatever, talking about the Jason days when like, yeah, he, he was just the guy who got knocked out by Joshua and nothing else. You know, he's, he's established himself. He's, he's built up a reasonably, you know, Joseph Parker being his best win, um, beat Oscar Rivas in the fight where he tested positive. But, you know, the thing which has accumulated over time, like he got hurt, 
very badly in the Joseph Parker fight. He got knocked down by an uppercut in the Oscar Rivas fight. And, you know, he got destroyed by Anthony Joshua being finally put down by a right uppercut, (laughs) you know. So um, the damage accumulates over time. And this is, you know, this is heavyweight. These are the big boys. So I think it kind of feels like while he was just sitting in that mandatory position, <laughs> you know, the his reign as the longest ever WBC uh, mandatory, uh, um, you know, I, th- I think he, he kind of got worn down, you know, and if he's getting put down like that by a shot like that by Povetkin, um, it, that might be it. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's like he was sitting in that mandatory slot for so long. He's been undefeated since 2015. I think kind of a lot of people, I mean, like you, I mean, I think our notion was like, oh, he's not that good. But I think slowly he was kind of, uh, you know, running out the miles on the odometer. Well, I mean, I've always been really low on Dillian White. And the reason for that is I've always been low on Derek Chisora. And when I saw Dillian White follow up his uh, loss over Anthony Joshua with that absolute war that everybody loved with Derek Chisora... But arguably losing that fight to a guy in Derek Chisora who doesn't even throw a lot of punches in, 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 in certain fights. You know, a guy who looks really mediocre at times in his career. And I thought, Dillian White should be better than this. I mean, if you're the kind of guy that is going to demand a rematch with Anthony Joshua, and certainly there was something in that fight where you could have said they should do a rematch, I'm not seeing it. And, you know... That's why I've never felt really good about Dillian White. And, you know, very likely he's hit his ceiling. Like, this is it. The the old men of the division, as well as maybe the mid-card guys, to, to you know, put it mildly there. I, I And, you know, we should say, we, it, it, we'd be remiss to not acknowledge that Alexander Povetkin has certainly had his transformations over his career and those aren't to do with changing trainers or moving where he does he does camp or anything like that it's more to do with perhaps some enhancements and i know that dillian white also has those types of uh stories that hover around him but like you know is a perfect storm for both guys i think you know that pandemic Dillian White came in in the best shape of his life, transformed himself, spent some time in Portugal. Meanwhile, who knows what Alexander Povetkin was doing off in Russia. But where does he go from here? I mean, it looks very clear that he's got to do the rematch. I mean, I, I think that fight, was the, the the knockout was violent to the, to the point that if he does not avenge that, he will never be able to progress past it. It will stick with him forever. And... We're seeing that right now with Erickson Lubin, where like Lubin is just not connecting. And if you remember, people were really excited about Erickson Lubin. He goes up, fights Jermel Charlo. He doesn't go up, but he fights Jermel Charlo, gets knocked out. And it's like he continues to be an afterthought, even though he's done. He's been very impressive since that fight. And so for Dillian White, even for like middling heavyweight fights, I just don't see it at this point. He'll never be able to progress past that domestic level of like, yeah, I can headline a sky card, but will anybody in the U.S., you know, in a tighter U.S. market, would anybody want to pick up those fights? Probably not. Now, obviously, we have four major broadcasters in the U.S. Uh, Somebody will pick up any fight, really. But, 
would that have fight? Would Dillian White's fights going forward been picked up in the HBO Showtime only era? I believe the answer to that is no. I mean, I think you're right about the rematch. I think that makes the most sense. Um, I mean, for White anyway, and they're, you know, I don't know if there's a rematch clause, but it's all within. the They said that there matchers. is. And, oh yeah, you didn't see okay, the, okay. the post fight yeah. stuff. Uh, so a couple of notes from the post fight stuff. Eddie Hearn seemed really upset by this. Yeah, the broadcast I watched didn't have. It just ended. It, you know, they did the fight, they did a few highlights, and then it was over. So uh, okay, that's... so watching live, um, Eddie Hearn was very, very upset, and he tried to, you know, spin it and do what he does, and he did a good job at that. But like, you could just tell he was really shocked, really upset by the result. Upset as in performing compassion on behalf of White, or upset as in like this is bad for my business, and he was genuinely upset. Bad for business because everything, especially you, you'll hear it. Like everything that he said afterward was framed uh, by the business that was hurt. Kind of like the MLB announcer who uh, used a homophobic slur. Oh my god! This past what a week, clip. Well, I'm not saying Dear that it's the Lord. same thing, but. If you listen to his apology, <laughs> yeah, maybe we don't want to drag Hearn into that. No, no, yeah. no. Uh, obviously, Eddie or Eddie Hearn. You know, you can say what you want, but Eddie Hearn, for the most part, is a. Did is, Hearn have to interrupt the post fight to uh, call a home run? No, no, he didn't. He, there wasn't another knockdown for him to call. But what? But that guy. One of the things that stuck out about his quote unquote apology is that everything was about you know his future, like having a job, things like that, which obviously should be your concern. But like he, like. You would have thought right, that he would have apologized. exactly from the sincerity of the apology. Exactly, it, like he, he didn't quite like he. It wasn't his first thought to address the people who who might have been hurt by his comments. Instead, it was like, oh, let me talk to my employers here, uh, which is you know a meeting you should probably have with HR. But needless to say, Eddie Hearn immediately went to that perspective of like you know going forward and stuff like that. And um, he was upset by that. Anthony Joshua looked like he wanted to laugh, but was re- doing a really good job holding it in. I think, I don't know, when I first saw the clip, I thought Joshua looked a little concerned by what he saw. But then I've seen other clips, and it looks like Joshua might have been just holding back laughter. Because, it, I mean, it was really funny. They trotted Joshua out. He came in looking like a million bucks. That, that shirt he was wearing was super starched. It was crisp. And um, he's there watching this fight and, you know, he watches Dillian White get knocked out. And given the history between the two, I can't imagine that Joshua would have had his feelings hurt that Dillian White would have lost the fight. So, I mean, it the best laid plans, this is kind of what happens when you, when you try to plan things out like this. Uh, so, I mean, do you think White could win the Wii match? I just, I, I really messed that up. I sounded like that one British judge. <laughs> White could win the Wii match. <laughs> yeah. British fans, I think you know what I'm talking about. You'll laugh more than, than Thomas because he has no clue what I'm talking about. I, uh, I actually <laughs> can't believe I said like, that. You hear like a judge get interviewed, or you're talking about a ref. I think it's a ref, but the refs are also judge, by the way. Uh, but I, uh, I'm gonna, I'll ask one of our, our British people in the chat, and they'll tell me who it is. Anyway, you could uh, tell me, do you think he's going to win the rematch or can win the rematch? Sorry, I got distracted by your pronunciation. Yeah, um, <laughs> I yeah, I think he definitely could win the rematch. Um, you know, it's like I've been doing the podcast long enough. How many times have we had fights like this where you have like one fighter who's getting hit by the same punch over and over again? 
and you're you sort of think that like they can work on that in the gym and it's like sometimes they can sometimes they can't sometimes it's just like a fatal flaw in a fighter style that they keep getting you know it's like white getting knocked down by an uppercut against Rivas, getting sent to hell by joshua with an uppercut getting sent to hell by povetkin with an uppercut i mean but yeah i i I think he definitely can and again it would seem to make the most business sense to do that because it's kind of like what do you do with povetkin either you know i mean it's like he already fought joshua i mean i i don't think he's fought joseph parker yet so maybe no fight joseph parker and say the winner fights aj because it was two of aj's hardest fights you know povetkin did hit aj a lot prior to the stoppage so but um yeah, I think they'll do that, and I think he could win. And, I mean, that's sort of – I always think of the business standpoint first, and I think at the end of the day, they can definitely market that fight. I mean, there were two knockdowns. One was kind of pretty flimsy. The other one was more real, and then the knockout happened. So, yeah, I think you'll uh, I think you'll definitely see a rematch. I think they can definitely market a rematch. I think it'll definitely be bigger than the first fight because I think uh, most people just thought, well, Povetkin's old, and, you know, it's going to be kind of uh, just say a, a mild – you know, just getting back to what you said to Simon, it just looked like it was going to be a Dillian White win. So, yeah, I think that that's pretty clear what they'll do here. Well, it wasn't Simon. It was Jason. But, yeah, I think so <laughs> winning Jason. the rematch is having the rematch because I imagine this is going to be a very big deal in the UK. I mean, Dillian White was selling pay-per-views, albeit I'm not sure the extent of the uh, success of those pay-per-views, but he was on pay-per-view nonetheless. And he's had, I think, a few pay-per-views at this point. So having that rematch is going to do well box office-wise. Now, can he win the fight? I I don't know. I think what we saw in this fight is that he has enough power to put Povetkin down, but he didn't have the skill to put Povetkin away. And when he... I mean... uh, when he made a mistake, Povetkin immediately made him pay for it. And, like, the crazy thing is if you look at the way Povetkin was fighting him up to that point, Povetkin wasn't looking for that. Povetkin was going to the body, occasionally going upstairs, but mostly just going to the body, which I thought was really wild to start the fight. I'm like, what is Povetkin doing here? Um, <clears throat> so, I don't know. I, I, I Either way, I think it's good. Povetkin is in a good position here because if he does the rematch, I imagine it's going to be very successful in the UK, he gets a big fight and cool. And if he loses, like, that's a career, you know? Povetkin got to fight Klitschko, he fought Joshua, and he fought two pay-per-views against Dillian White. Can't do much better than that, you know? How many fighters have retired that have had fights, uh, that have had fewer big-time fights than that? I mean, how many big-time fights has Lomachenko have? How many big-time fights has Gary Russell had? How many big-time fights has Dimitri Bivol have? Granted, those are varying levels of age between those three fighters, but at this point in their career, they're still active. They haven't had as many big fights as um, Alexander Povetkin has. So if he wins against White, which is a big uh, if, I think, because I still would favor Dillian White to win that fight, uh, he potentially has Deontay Wilder to fight. He potentially could fight Tyson Fury. He hasn't fought him. There are still plenty of heavyweights that have names out there that are opportunities for Dillian White. And you mentioned Joseph Parker, which I thought is a great mention. Um, I, I'd love to see that fight. I think it's a good fight. Will it be a, a, a sky box office fight? I don't think so. But that is a hell of a fight between two fighters that it would be a good test for them. I mean, I don't know. Is is Povetkin for real? If he beats Dillian White again... 
then we have to question whether Dillian White is any good and like really come confront that question. If he were to fight Joseph Parker and he beat Joseph Parker, then we know, all right, well, Povetkin has still got it at this age that he's at. So I think though, if he fights White and beats him again, there's no way that he doesn't fight one of the big three, whether that be a Joshua rematch. I mean, you could sell that he was tagging Joshua pretty bad in that fight or Wilder or Fury. At, the, at that point, I would imagine that we would have some resolution between Wilder and Fury, and we'll know if we're going to get Fury versus the winner, which I don't know we'll get immediately. They say that they want that, but I'm really skeptical about all of that. Anyway, anything else you want to uh, touch on here? No, I think you covered. I mean, you made a lot of good points, but nothing I really need to respond to. All right, cool. Katie Taylor scored a decision win over Delphine Pursun. We don't need to get into this as much. I mean, this fight played out exactly like you thought, or you would have thought it would have, especially if you saw, saw the first one. You'd expect Katie Taylor to come in and be a little better defensively. You'd expect her to come in and pick her shots a little better, and you'd expect the exact same thing from Delphine Pursun, which was, and I hope I'm saying her name right. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty maybe? sure it's Delphine, but yeah. Whatever. Like, come on, it's spelled Delphine. I've never seen this name before, apart from her. But you'd expect her to come in and just... She's like Sean Porter of women fighters. Like, she's just... Like, her work rate is ridiculous. And that's what we got here. Pursun, insane work rate. Katie Taylor had a few rounds where she was able to really box and move and land some crisp shots. And that was the difference because otherwise... Pursuit just outworked her. In all the other rounds that Katie, Katie Taylor um, didn't make very clear, they, they, those were tight rounds because Pursuit just did not stop throwing punches. Wasn't a wide decision as one of the judges had it. Like I, Obviously, I think Katie Taylor won the fight by maybe a round or two, but it, it was definitely not some wipeout. Um, a little nice little, um, you know, co-main. I don't think it was a great fight, although some may... I, I don't know. I saw some people saying like, oh, this is an amazing fight, stuff like that. I don't know. Just punches landed for me doesn't make it a good fight because there are so many punches where, or sorry, there's so many fights where a lot of punches land that doesn't make them any good, you know? Leo Santa Cruz versus Rafael Rivera wasn't a thrilling fight. A lot of punches landed, but it just wasn't a very thrilling fight. All right. On Fox, Sean Porter completely dominated Sebastian Formella. Uh, Formella made a had he gave a good account of himself and the reason why I say that is because he looked like he can do a few things he looked like a a tricky little fighter but there's levels to this and Sean Porter looks like you know he was on another level from Sebastian Formella at you know on every single thing you can count on you know defense work rate speed everything Sean Porter was just so much better than Sebastian Formella the only thing maybe is power. They appear to have about the same level of power. So let me ask you this. Sean Porter wins this fight very impressively. Question is, should Sean Porter have stopped Sebastian Formella? Um, yeah, I, I, that's not exactly how I would phrase the whole, frame the whole fight, but I'll, I'll answer that. And... It would have been nice if he had, but I think you're, you're looking at a few layers of like why that was the opponent, how good or bad is this outcome for Sean Porter, how good or bad is this outcome for the PBC, 
Should he have stopped him? I think in terms of like boxing fans, if boxing fans were going to care, they wanted to see a stoppage because Formella was so unknown. But, you know, maybe he'll, you know, something we'll get to when we talk about Joe Smith. It's like maybe he'll go on to have like <laughs> a legendary chin. I mean, probably not. But, you know, um, yeah, I mean, he uh, is fresh in his career. He hasn't gotten beaten up. He's an undefeated fighter. I don't think you can ever go into a fight like that and say it's uh, a given that, that you need a stoppage or else it's a bad performance. But um, then you start to get in, though, like, you know, what was Sean Porter trying to do with this? But, you know, those are sort of longer answers. So back to you. How do you uh, feel about that? Well, I think there was an expectation that Sh- Sean Porter was going to stop Formella. I heard plenty of people saying that, but like, I feel like people don't really understand what Sean Porter is. I mean, look at the guys who he stopped. They've clearly been on their way out of the ring. Like he's not a power puncher. And one of the things that Sean Porter has developed over the past few years is the guys like become increasingly hesitant to just go all out. You know, you saw in this fight, Sean Porter was very measured and picked his places, and he and he does this for defensive reasons. I think Sean Porter can't walk into fights the way he did against Keith Thurman anymore. Um, he tried it against Kel, Kel Brook and got outboxed. Tried it against Ugas, and, and or no, actually, he didn't try it against Ugas. It would have probably helped him against Ugas, but Sean Porter's the kind of guy that keeps changing his style, and he's evolving, and you can evaluate that, certainly, like wh- how good or bad are these changes in Sean Porter's style and do they work for him? But realistically, put put a couple of things together. Sean Porter is not a power puncher. Um, Sean Porter does not, he while he puts pressure, he doesn't put pressure in the sense that, um, like a Golovkin pressure, where he's breaking a guy down with body shots and stuff like that. He, he's not punching with that sort of effect. And Sebastian Formella was very tough. Like, I, I was shocked because I... He, Everyone told me who had watched uh, a significant part of his career, oh, this is a guy who's very, like, meek, you know? He looks very shaky in the ring, and that's not what I really got. I mean, he looks like that, like, physically, you know? you If you saw Sebastian Formella on the street and he bumped into you, you're probably going to grab him and try to put him in a toilet or something. But that's not really who this guy is. This guy is a really tough guy. And I don't know. I don't think Sean Porter... I think it would have been nice for Sean Porter to stop him. I think that would have bode well for him. But at the same time, I get what Sean Porter was aiming to do. And I, I don't think that that was ever going to lead to a stoppage, really. You know, you talked about, was it the the right outcome? I think you said that? Uh, Well, just, just keep going. I mean, I, I think it was the right outcome. I think just because... A guy doesn't stop somebody doesn't mean that they're any less impressive. I mean, I thought this was a very impressive performance from Sean Porter, where we got to see Sean look completely different from the way he did against Errol. And does that mean that Sean Porter... I mean, I don't know. I I just think... I, I was impressed with what I saw from Sean Porter. I don't think that Sean Porter... Like, this will lead me to believe that I'm now picking Sean in a rematch with uh, Errol Spence. But... He does look like one of the elite welterweights in the world. And I, if this, if the goal here was like, oh, we want to make people want to see Sean Porter in with another elite fighter again, they accomplished their goal. 
Yeah, so I'm going to just sort of keep going with um, I'll describe it this way as far as like the knockout or not a knockout. You know, in the era of top rank being on ESPN and controlling their own matchmaking, something that they couldn't completely do at HBO, you know, you've seen very cynical matchmaking when, you know, they've had some good fights for sure. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when they have a fighter and the goal of the fight is to get a knockout for that fighter. They don't fuck around with the matchmaking. They don't do a guy in the top 30. They don't do a guy in the top 50. You'll see guys who are outside of the top 100 all the time. Shakur Stevenson has fought multiple guys outside of the top 100, even since he start to get, started to get to the contender level. Um, you saw Carl Frampton uh, fight someone outside of the top 200. You saw Michael Conlon fight someone out of the top 300 this summer. And again, I know they're box rec numbers, and I care about them more than anyone else in the world, but... You know, they do give you a barometer of if you are if you fought someone with 10 losses and got knocked down in that fight, that probably means you're not a very good fighter. You know, if it means you're getting a, a split decision against a guy with 16 losses, it means you're probably not a very good fighter. You know, those numbers that the algorithm does sort of find meaning. And if you look at a fight like this, Formella was not a guy outside. If, if the goal of this fight was for Ta- Sean Porter to get a knockout on TV. They didn't need to get someone who's ranked somewhere around 25 at welterweight. You know, Formello is completely unknown in the U.S., but he's been uh, beating guys in Germany. Uh, he's beaten a number of undefeated fighters, number of guys with, say, one loss-ish. You know, he, he, he fought to this level in the, the sanctioning body rankings. And again, I'm not saying he's a world beater, but he's around that level in the most stacked division in boxing. You know, we always talk about this on the podcast, but welterweight literally has the most active competitors. It's sort of the bell curve of human body size. It's like, you know, more people are that more humans are that size than anyone else. They have the most people. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. You know, they could have gotten a dead body for him to knock out. That wasn't the point of this fight. And and just to sort of get into the sort of the whys of that, PBC has been making a lot of moves at welterweight. Even, you know, they always have, but even recently we have uh, Hooker is moving up and fighting at welterweight. Regis Perger is going to move up, fight at welterweight. Um, Thomas DeLorme is a guy who has been sort of all over the place. He re- he's been fighting PBC in his last few. You know, PBC is trying to get as many guys in the top 30 as they can. They're not just trying to get guys in the top five and the top 10. Um, and I think Formella fits into that. You know, this was a fight which could have been a Crawford fight. You know, an undefeated guy, uh, 22-0, that could have been a Crawford opponent. Instead, it was a Sean Porter opponent. Opponent. So there's there's a game of chess being played here that I think sort of needs to be understood. And, you know, from the standpoint of what kind of fights does Fox want, you had Sean Porter, who just fought in a pay-per-view, on in primetime, and the fight went the distance. You know, if, if they're selling ads, they don't need a first-round knockout. You know, this is something... That's always been debated of what outcome do networks want. This is something I've literally asked Steven Espinosa, and you know, he'll say it's it's sort of a wash. You know, it's like there are benefits to the fights being longer because you have you know eyeballs in the network, but there's also benefits to a dramatic knockout because then you get big social media numbers, and that helps the network too. So, but from the standpoint of Fox, which sells ratings, they do want a longer fight. So you know. I think that goes to the philosophy of having, you know, more competitive fights in some of these main events on ESPN and Fox, that it's not the worst thing if these fights go to the distance. At the same time, if you have a prospect and the goal is for it to be a knockout, 
you match the fight that way. Anyway, that was a long answer, but um, thoughts on any of that or, or ready to move on? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. You can never go wrong when you quote Stephen Espinoza and some of his insights on the business because Stephen Espinoza is one of the smartest people in boxing. And, you know, one of the problems that boxing had in terms of being on network TV was that you can't predict how long the broadcast is going to be. There's no guarantee of decisions. And that turns off ad ad buyers. And so, you know, Sean Porter going 12 rounds isn't the worst thing in the world for Fox. Especially with that poor lead-in from the MLS, but that's neither here nor there. So, what do you want to see next from Sean Porter? Yeah, and, and one more comment on that. I mean, I think... People, I can already see criticizing us for this, or say, you know, it's like nobody would ever. Let's just be clear. Us. I mean, no, but I'll <laughs> just I'll just say something that I feel like we think maybe is implied, but I think should be said. There's no question that this was not the type of dramatic outcome that boxing fans want. You know, if you look at our Discord, if you look at Twitter, you know, the number one story was Povetkin for sure. the The number two story was Joe Smith and Alvarez and Sean Porter got lost somewhere in like, okay, we knew he was better than Formella that happened. And there was really, you know, it seemed like as soon as the fight got underway, there was really no more drama than that, you know? Well, so, you know, you, you can't lose sight of that element, but you know, I'll just get back to, again, it's like to, from the business standpoint of boxing and from the standpoint of the PBC, I don't think the outcome is in any way. bad. What it, what there was no way for, this fight to have the Pavetkin style finish and the buzz. I mean, the only way that this was going to happen is if Sean Porter had gotten knocked out. I mean, if Porter would have knocked out Formella, I don't think anybody would have cared because that, that was what was expected. I mean, Sean Porter's an elite welterweight and Sebastian Formella is a guy that nobody cares about. So this is one of those instances where you can't really win here. I mean, it would have been a cool gift, but like, you know, I don't know that you can pop like this on this one. Well, and again, if they wanted him to knock out an overmatched opponent, they could have gotten like Devin Alexander out of retirement or something. Oh, God. Yeah, but I mean, that's my point, though. I mean, I think it's people, pe- people in boxing are quick to say, I don't know who this fighter is. That means X. Right. And I think if you look a little deeper at who Formella is, it's like, yeah, he's probably about 25 in the division. He's probably at the level of maybe someone like a Josecito Lopez. I mean, I don't know. No, I mean, what Jose would that Cito Lopez like? would be would beat him. Yeah. But how, you know, it's like, do you think that would be a shutout? Do you th- you know, it's like, I don't know. Do you think it, it, I definitely don't think it'd be a knockout. I don't you know? think it'd I mean, be a shutout, but I think he'd, he'd beat him. I, I don't think anybody would pick Formella over Josecito. I mean, I could be wrong, but. I don't think so. My point is that that's I, th- I feel like that's more or less the level that he is. I, I don't think there's a dramatic separation in terms of the talent of those two guys. Okay. But anyway, we, we can move on. Yeah. I mean, going forward, I, I think Sean Porter, like, he, he's in the mix for everybody. I mean, obviously he could and is going to be fighting the main event uh, or the winner of Spence Garcia. I mean, he told me that when I spoke to him this week, as well as... Uh, you know, it, it looks like every indication by him being fighting this for an eliminator 
that that is going to be his future. But like, I can imagine Sean Porter gives that up. Manny Pacquiao comes to the table is like, yeah, yeah, I think I'd like to fight Sean Porter, which I don't think is going to be the case. Um, could he fight Terrence Crawford? Yeah. The best fight though, I think is like, have him fight Keith Thurman again. I mean, Thurman we needs a get well fight. He needs a fight where we can f- just make sure, give his body a, a test drive, make sure he's healthy again. And like, why not go straight to Sean Porter? Like, what do I, what does either guy lose if they lose to each other? Assuming one doesn't get knocked out, you know, cold, what do they lose? I mean, the welterweight division, especially these guys at the top, you can just keep recycling these matchups because these guys we know are are extraordinarily talented. Terrence Crawford could fight Sean Porter. He could lose. He could go fight Danny Garcia. That would still be a hell of a fight, and which is what we need and what we want. You know, they've done that at 154, and I'd love for that to be the case at 147. But um, I, th- I think that is like Sean Porter is just in a great position right now. Although I do think it, the if we were to criticize anything, it'd be the fact that he's not the one calling the shots in his career. He's got to have the shots called for him by the guys who are above him. And, you know, that kind of sucks. But, you know, I, I, I can't imagine there are many fighters out there who wouldn't want to be in Sean's position. Yeah, I, I'm ready to jump in whenever here. But yeah, yeah I, I have sort of two comments on that. I mean, it was interesting. I, I mean, we both talked to Sean Porter and different. I, I talked to him a little bit on the media call, but I, you know, I listened in on the whole rest of the media call. And you did the AMA, right? Yeah. So I mean, well, let's separate. Why, let's jump in here. Any, any interesting comments from the AMA? Um, I mean, first and foremost, Sean is a really cool guy. I mean, the the reason why that guy's so good on commentary and good as like a pundit on the shows. Is that's just him. Like, there's no difference between the way he is on Inside PBC or the way he was on Inside PBC, the way he is in interviews, and then when he was talking to me, like, whether, when, like, before I started to officially ask him questions, I mean, Sean was just a cool guy like that. And um, he he really got a kick out of questions that had nothing to do with boxing. I, I felt like he really liked just talking about stuff that wasn't, like, the normal sort of media calls, like, you know, what is this... What does this fight mean for your career and stuff like that? He he really seemed to enjoy like just having a chat about the other stuff. Um, one thing that I thought was perhaps the best answer that he had given was I asked him, or somebody asked a question about his his dad as a trainer and if he feels like he'll ever outgrow his dad given his dad had limited success or or I should say yeah limited success as a as a fighter in terms of like I think he was only an amateur. And does he think that his dad will ever like just kind of like not have much more to teach him? And Sean said, I don't think that I will ever outgrow my dad. And the reason for that is because he said, Kenny Porter knows where his limitations are and knows where Sean's limitations are. And his solution is always to bring new things into camp and bring new people and get other voices in there so that Sean can get an education a boxing education from everybody. So we've seen in the past, he's like, you know, he allowed, he, he had Freddie Roach work with me. He had Barry Hunter work with me. He brings in different people into the camp so that Sean can learn from somebody other than him, which I thought was a real good answer because I mean, everyone should do that. You know, one trainer can see a lot and there are certainly great trainers out there, but there are other aspects that may not be, um, that they may be a little weak in, and that's where you bring in somebody else who can cover up the gaps. And that's uh, that, that seemed like 
Or I mean, that's just what Kenny Porter does, and that's that's great. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's that's a great answer about you know. I mean, from Sean, it's also interesting to hear from you what it was like doing the AMA. I mean, I'll just add one more. Everyone, if you're listening to this, I think you'd enjoy reading through the, Sean's answers on the AMA. I did the best you I could know? to keep up with his talking because he did talk kind of fast. I might have dropped a, a thing <laughs> here or there. Yeah, the, those AMAs, I mean, you're always doing your best to transcribe them. I'm, I'm impressed with you and, and MDA doing them. So I, I definitely would, yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a yeah unenviable to have to type those out. But um, uh, the th- one thing which was pretty cool, which I'd say one thing worth checking out if I, I could single out one thing, he gave the best answer I've ever heard about what it was like to fight um, Alexander Ushik and how that fight <laughs> played out. Um, you know, people are always fascinated by that, that Porter used to fight at 165 and fought guys like Danny Jacobs and Ushik, who, you know, now is obviously at heavyweight, but, you know, once upon a time was in the same division as Sean Porter. It's it's just a weird ship's crossing in the night. And he gave actually like a, a good answer about that. I think so. He's sort of in the past acknowledged that the fight happened, but he actually talked about it and uh, and won. Correct. I do want to I don't know if you if you want to relate that a little bit. Oh, we yeah, he on, said. Yeah. We, well, he did say that. But, Ushik was a good fighter that he hurt Ushik in the fight and that's when he pulled away and that he didn't he didn't realize Ushik had become a big deal until he won I think that he I think he said until he won the cruiserweight title and then he was just like oh like he connected it like oh I beat that guy in the amateurs wow he's a he's a cruiserweight now yeah, I mean, it's pretty cr- I mean it's yeah, it's one of those just strange stories of welterweight versus heavy, you know, it's like you never know what direction fighters are going to go when they turn pro like uh, luke campbell fought at 118 as an amateur you know 135 now um so another just uh point i want to hit about porter um actually so where, where were we before that when we jumped in with the ama oh you were saying you talked to him this week yeah uh, um, oh we were saying where is he going now yeah so I'll, I'll talk about that there are two other points i want to hit with him that's that's one of them so you know he's in an interesting situation in terms of like you know how the economy of the pbc works where it's like, okay, he's reached this level of prominence. He's arguably, I think you would say, at the peak of his career in terms of his popularity and drawing power, you know, at, at least up to this point, uh, having fought on the, the successful pay-per-view with Spence. You know, he's already had a bunch of, uh, he's gotten a lot of exposure from doing the uh, PBC talk show on FS1, uh, you know, is in the past fought. Keith Thurman, big ratings network television. Broner, big ratings network television. Um, but it's like, you know, how does that work in the, the PBC? I mean, he wants pay-per-view fights. You know, there's no question about that. So um, if he fights Keith Thurman, is that a pay-per-view or is that does that headline a Fox card? I mean, that doesn't that seems like a little bit above the level of what Fox is doing. And then right. is it like is that a Showtime headliner then? I mean, we don't really know what Showtime is going to look like next year. We kind of. You know, it's been kind of up and down the last few years, like past few years, they've had a mix of like really high profile main events with some kind of like just lower level, just kind of filling out the PBC schedule stuff. This fall is a mix of that. I mean, one novel idea I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw out two novel ideas for what Porter could do. I feel like a fight against Keith Thurman would be an interesting fight if PBC decides to do more double headers. Like, I mean, that's something where it's really interesting with the Charlo doubleheader. If they do start doing cards like that where they have two really good main events, which are above the level of something you would normally see on one of their main cards, it opens up something like that. Outside of that, 
I don't think Keith Thurman versus Sean Porter necessarily sells on pay-per-view, but if they can make this work where they have like real double headers, not just like a good undercard, but like real double headers, I think that could be half of a, a good double header. Yeah. The other th- One thing that you, I don't think you explicitly stated, but is basically what the point you're getting at is that that fight is in no man's land. Like it's almost good enough to be on pay-per-view given who the guys are, but it's, it's almost too good for Fox. It's almost too good for for Showtime. Like you feel like you're if you're PVC, there's money left on on the table if you do those fights on on the regular broadcast. I mean, unless the broad or the the networks are like, hey, we're gonna shell out more money for this. So, um, so that's why that leads you into the double header point, which I think is a really good question, and it, it, it's got my brain already working. Like, well, what would be what could be on the level of that fight that they could do as the other double header or the other headliner. But anyway, go, go on to point number two. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Mikey Garcia versus Danny Garcia. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I, you think that would, could headline on its own. Anyway, I'll, I'll keep going. But the, the other, so outside of that, it does get a little tricky for Sean at 147 because, you know, it's like when Pacquiao beat Thurman, I don't think that's what anyone at the PBC was expecting to happen. You know, because that kind of upends a lot of stuff because suddenly Pacquiao holds so much capital in terms of the, you know, the division. Um, You have Spence, but Porter just fought Spence. And, you know, I argued at the time that a rematch could definitely sell because that first fight was so good. Um, But, you know, what is the angle for that? If Spence knocks out Danny Garcia and Keith Thurman and Manny Pacquiao or something, then suddenly Porter's performance starts to look really good. Or if Porter starts knocking people out, otherwise it's hard to argue that it would look different than the first fight, you know, or if Spence looks, you know, impacted because of the car accident, but that's not really a selling point that it's like (laughs) the first fight was good, but Spence won, but now he got an, you know, so the other idea that I had for him uh, would be moving up to 154. You know, and this is something that I've asked Sean Porter about. You know, I get to do these media calls. He's not like he's my best bud, but I, I talked to him on these media calls periodically. And I, I've asked him about that actually multiple times over the years. And he's always just said, I'm at 147. You know, we're not thinking about that yet. Um, and it, what's interesting to me, though, is now again, getting back to that, uh, how big of a game changer potentially um, the, the Jermel, Jermel doubleheader is. Suddenly, if Jermel comes out of that with a big win um, and he's a pay-per-view headliner and you can do a pay-per-view with Jermel Charlo, suddenly guys at 147 who are iced out, you know, Spence has been talking a lot of shit at Thurman about not never wanting to fight him, which either means they're never going to fight or he's trying to build up, you know, for him to fight Thurman after Danny Garcia if he can't get a Pacquiao fight. okay, but. You know, say Thurman's iced out, say Porter doesn't have a pay-per-view fight left at 147 and Jermel is suddenly now doing pay-per-view stuff at 154. This was the first time that Porter actually expressed interest. You know, he he answered kind of um, sort of paraphrasing what he said. But every like I said, every time I've asked him that in the past, he's just said 147 is my division. This time when I said, you know, framed it as the pay-per-view with Rosario and Charlo, he said, when he and his dad watched Rosario beat J-Rock and become a unified champion at 154, they said to each other, we can beat him. Meaning like that's a <laughs> fight. That, yeah. Okay, keep going. Meaning that's a fight they would have done. Sure. And the notion now. Doesn't say much for Sean, J-Rock. <laughs> Sean, well, 
anyway, I'm just going to keep it moving. Uh, I don't want to, you know, we have enough keep going, uh, keep history. Going. But, um, <laughs> you know, and then you add in the pay-per-view element. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, we're talking about Sean Porter having fought at 165 in the amateurs. You kind of add all those pieces up and it suddenly starts to make sense for that to finally happen. You know, and for guys like Thurman, Thurman had talked about moving up to 154 like six years ago. Like when he fought on HBO, they were always talking about him fighting at 154 and he fought at like a catchweight in one fight to test yeah. the waters two divisions. So that suddenly Laura. starts to look really realistic. I mean, look, we've talked about Thurman's fought everyone or Porter and Thurman have fought everyone in the division. Um, and it starts to look like maybe they've kind of done that one too many times. Um, what if you start to add in Jermel Charlo when those fights are at 154? That to me gets extremely interesting. I mean, you're telling me you wouldn't want to see Sean Porter versus Jermel Charlo. I, I mean, I would love to see that. I'd love to see how Porter looks if he can put on a little more weight. I mean, to me, he's starting to look very gaunt making 147. So um, anyway, that was a much longer answer than I intended. But anyway, back to you. Well, I think the, the trouble there, I think for me, seeing Sean Porter at 154 is the apparent lack of power that he has at 147. Can he keep Jamel Charlo off of him? Or can he keep Jason Rosario off of him from connecting with something big? I mean, Errol Spence, who obviously is one of the biggest punchers at 147, put Sean Porter down. I imagine that some of those 154-pounders are going to catch him. And I don't think it's going to take as much as what Errol had to do to have the same sort of impact. So that kind of gives me some cause for concern about Sean Porter fighting at 154. But if you're asking, am I intrigued by that move? Am I fascinated by it? Regardless of what I think the outcome would be? Absolutely. I think that's a that's a, that's a great move. I love it. But I don't see it. I think Sean Porter, he's got an eliminator. He's going to try to force a rematch uh, with either Danny Garcia or Errol Spence, whoever comes out of that fight. And I think he's like dead set on that. Like that is his goal. He said it over and over again. I want to re be a three-time champion in the welterweight division. He does want Manny Pacquiao though. He did say like, like Manny Pacquiao is, you know, all bets are off. He'll throw the eliminator in the trash if he can get Manny Pacquiao. And we understand why he's saying that. There's very obvious reasons for that. Um, anyway, yeah, let's move on. We've been on this for a while. Um, on the undercard, Sebastian Fundora demolished Nathaniel Gallimore. Although we later learned that Gallimore tore a ligament in his foot. Still, Fundora looked pretty good. So my question to you, how impressed were you with Sebastian Fundora's performance? And do you take anything away from him after hearing the information that Gallimore tore a ligament in his foot? Well, give me more information on that because I actually didn't know that. I mean, I don't know. Was that supposed to have happened during the fight? Yeah. During training? Fight. I, I always take that stuff with a grain of salt. I mean, you know, Tom Cody conspiracy theories, etc. But I mean, you just, you know, all I have to say is Manny Pacquiao and his saltwater cure. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it, it just feels sometimes like this can be excusing a loss. And even if there is a real injury, it's really hard to tell how that impacted what happened. I mean... My comment on the fight is that I got to talk to Gallimore and Fundora, Fundora, excuse me, uh, during the media call as well. And uh, it was so night and day, the confidence between the two fighters. I mean, 
I was not alone in thinking that this looked like Fundura's hardest fight on paper. I was there coming too. in. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's a guy who had you know fought Jermonte Clark, which was his last step up fight, and that ended up being a draw. You know, and his last fight with uh, the top rank guy uh, Daniel Lewis. That was, you know, he got hit a lot in that fight. I mean, he won a wide decision, but he got hit a lot in that fight. So this seemed like kind of a head scratcher. I mean, Nathaniel Gallimore, especially because, like, his resume has improved so much in hindsight since he had the the knockout win over uh, Rosario, who, you know, went on to become a unified champion when he beat J-Rock. So it's like it. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it feels like I don't know if it's just a case of like it was the right time to get him or something to, to you know, to make it uh, um, to make his resume uh, get the biggest jump possible. But I mean, it's like, yeah, on paper, it looked like I thought, if anything, it might might favor Gallimore. Like it really just seemed like a little bit too much. But during the call, it was like Fundura was so confident uh, I asked him to predict the outcome. Some fighters will just say what happens, happens. We just need to be confident. And, you know, he he basically said without using the words that, you know, he was gunning for a knockout. You know, he was expecting a knockout. He's going in there to make a statement. And meanwhile, Gallimore almost had like, you know, sparring partner mentality. You know, you sort of uh, think about that of a fighter sounding almost like subservient. You know, it's like, yes, I'm going to do there. I'm going to do, you know, I'll do my best sort of. So I don't know if there was some. That's why I was asking if the injury happened before, because it seemed like they they knew something we didn't know. Like, I don't know if they had sparred before or something, but um, yeah, to get to the fight itself, I mean, Fundora, this was definitely the best performance of his career, in my opinion. I mean, I loved that early on he'd gotten tagged by some looping shots and then he figured it out and didn't get hit by those again. You know, at the beginning, it felt like, oh, here we go again. This is Fundora getting hit way more than he should, way more than he should just as a young man in boxing who shouldn't be getting hit that much when he's that young. And, you know, figured it out and just laid the leather on, got confident, kept the foot on the gas pedal and got the stoppage and, you know, really made a statement. Gallimore has been in with, you know, Teixeira, uh, Julian Williams, Lubin, um, has that win over Rosario, also Justin Deloach, who's another just very solid guy, 154. And like Fundura just basically showed him no respect and mowed him down. So, I mean, by far the best win of his career and, you know, starts to make him look really interesting as a prospect who's already got these names on his record at that age. Um, yeah, I, I, for Fundura, he has taken like four fights where like, these are good fights, especially given his, is where he's at. And like the fact that, you know, he's not somebody, like, he just kind of came out of nowhere. We don't, like, Fundora didn't have some elite sort of background or anything like that. Like, Fundora's just like, oh, he's a really tall guy, you know. It's, it's basically like a meme, you know. And I don't know, you you raise a good point about how Gallimore was responding and possibly how the fight may have, or might that may have affected the fight, I don't know. But... For having watched what I saw, I saw Gallimore look good enough early in that fight that I thought he was going to knock out Fundora. And Fundora really turned it on. And I was really impressed with what I saw from Fundora. He looks like, you know, I don't want to, you know, be too hyperbolic here. But Fundora may be a problem. Okay? 
And I like Fundora. I'm not going to lie about that. And I'm not going to hold that back or anything like that. I really like Fundora. I think he's a, a funny guy. Just a, a great, you know, just fantastic sort of, I, I don't want to call it like a freak show or something. But Fundora's like, you know, you just don't expect it. And he's like actually starting to develop like real skill. I mean... He's a six foot six guy who's able to fight really well on the inside and he's developing power. Okay. That is something that I never thought I would see. You know, we've seen really tall, lanky guys look good on the inside, but uh, Fundura looks like he's, you know, you see these tall guys and you're like, he should use his jab more. I mean, Paul Williams, like he should jab more, but with Fundura it's like, no, he uses a jab just enough, but he's actually much better on the inside than he is on the outside. So I was really impressed with him. He's, he's he's been matched really well thus far in terms of like they're challenging him and he's meeting the challenges. He's had four very competitive opponents that you don't see guys with uh, the amount of fights that Fundora's had at this point in his career. He's already had them. So that's been pretty good. And you got to shout out Samson Lukowitz for trusting that Fundora's going to develop. I mean, if he's a six foot six guy who's going to have power at one uh, 154, I, I can definitely see that this guy has got a future um, just being in, in the top-level matchups. I don't know that he'll win a title. I don't, I'm not going to go that far. But, I mean, it's a great story. He's got a great look. And, um, you know, I was impressed with the performance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and again, I mean, this is the signature win of his career thus far. I mean, it's like if you look at I'll, – I'll keep this pretty quick. But if you look at just the names – that he's been in with. I mean, if you just look at the combination of, you know, Jermonte Clark, um, well, really, I mean, Jermonte Clark and, and Nathaniel Gallimore. I mean, that's about the level of Shakur Stevenson, you know, in terms of like Shakur Stevenson has fought a bunch of guys outside of the top 100 and then two guys about in the top 30. I mean, this is about that level or better. And I mean, in one result, he had a draw, which was not great. <laughs> and the other result, he had an absolutely dominant knockout you know Shakur Stevenson in those two fights had sort of 12-0 decisions I know that might seem like a weird comparison but it is I don't know I mean it's kind of reasonable to start to think of him on that level just in terms of you know who he's been in with and he's only 22 I mean that really is like not to be underscored I mean that that's impressive anyway I'm ready to move on all right um Elliot or Alvarez was upset, maybe knocked out. Uh, certainly, quick shout out to uh, Joey Spencer before we move off the PBC. Card. Oh yeah, Joey um, Spencer, your boy. Who, if yeah. he does not get a real trainer, he is going to go nowhere fast. He cannot throw a left hand without dropping his right hand, and his opponent, not so good, still was able to figure that out. If Joey Spencer don't figure that out and don't have somebody tape his damn right hand to his face, he is in major trouble. Like, Vito Milnecki does not need to go to Joe Goosen, okay? Vito's progressing at the rate that he should, and he looks like whoever's training him right now, at a minimum, minimum, they are competent enough to teach him good basics. Joey Spencer, on the other hand, not the case. He has no future if they do not get him a, a real trainer to teach him these sort of basic stuff because what I saw was not that pretty. Yeah, I'm going to keep this very succinct. We're, we're going along. I just, uh, in my opinion, by far the best performance of his career thus far, uh, you know, in contrast to um, 
uh, Fundora, he has not stepped up yet. I mean, he's also younger, so he doesn't really need to have. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say it was significant in that sense. But no, he looked good. It was the best performance of his career. So, uh, you know, looks like he's progressing. He's only 20 years old. Um, he's got a lot of time. So that's all I have to say about that. All right. And Tom is a big fan of Joey Spencer. So that's only why we reason why I would even address that. Um, <laughs> America is a fan of, yeah, anyway, we can so Joe Smith Jr. knocked out Alejandro Alvarez, or I guess he stopped him. Um, knocked him out of the ring, sorta. I mean, a third of Alejandro Alvarez's body was outside of the ring. It's not like he was rolling around on the floor. It wasn't the full Hopkins. No, it didn't go through the 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 judges' table. Nothing like that. Okay. Uh, so, but do you think this was a major upset? I think it was a modest upset. I think it was an upset. Uh, especially with the knockout. I mean, just something we were talking before about, like, you know, when you have guys about the same level, what kind of outcome are you really expecting? And I would have said these guys are about the same level and Alvarez would be the favorite. And, you know, that's how it looked on paper. Um, But Joe Smith can, you know, uh, (laughs) punch like a mule and, you know, he got the knockout. But, I mean, even outside of that, he was winning the fight. So, um I don't know. Do you have any other takes on the fight? I mean, you know, uh, Joe Smith, the perennial underdog, always easy to root for. Rocking the local um, 43 or whatever yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> ha- top rank is happy to have that story to push. You know, if they love pushing Clay Collard, I'm sure they're in heaven with Joe Smith here. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Any You, any other thoughts on the fight? Well, it's not a major upset to me. I, I agree 100% with what you said. Similar level, Elliot or Alvarez should be the favorite, just based on a fundamentals level. Um, we know Joe Smith Jr. can punch, but like on a fundamentals level, Elliot or Alvarez should be a little bit better as a boxer than Joe Smith Jr. And if you're the better boxer, you your opponent's got to have a lot of power for your for for the boxer to not be the favorite there. But you know. It's not that big of an upset to me because I have never thought that Eliator Alvarez was good. And the reason why I know this is because as, as um, you know, I used to write previews like every week and go real deep on, on cards and look and examine it, uh, the fighters that were on these cards. And I was always looking for guys on the rise, guys to pay attention to. And typically how you find that is you look at box rack and you look at these cards and yeah, there's the main eventer and blah, blah, blah. But you look at the guys who are like 8-0 seven and oh 13 and oh and you you investigate those guys and figure out if those guys are any good and, and where they're where they're gonna go you know you look at a guy who was nine and oh and ivan nahara and you take a look at him it's like oh that guy's not like that ain't what it is he doesn't keep his hands up he's probably gonna get knocked out at some point before he can even get to contender level and Elliot Alvarez was one of those guys that was like, oh, okay, this guy looks good. You know, he might even have us uh, something here. And then the more I watched him, though, the more I realized, like, this guy is just missing something. And whatever it is, that something is kind of a big thing. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, some, like you make something that looks like the, the recipe but has zero flavor. That's what Elliot Alvarez is. He kind of looks the part, but... If you watch him, it's just it ain't it. You just know you're not looking at the real deal there. And yeah, I know people can point to the Kovalev win and a couple of other wins and say, well, Alvarez might be good, but like not really. You know that version of Sergey Kovalev he beat. How good was that version? <clears throat> Given the fact that Sergey Kovalev came back and outboxed him for 12 rounds, I mean maybe that that problem was more Sergey Kovalev and not the fact that 
Eliader Alvarez was any good. And uh, Joe Smith Jr., on the other hand, is a guy that you watch him and it's like, okay, you can outbox him, but you're going to have to avoid getting hit by this guy. And if you can do that, you're good. Demetri Bivol completely just embarrassed Joe Smith Jr. until the final round when Joe Smith Jr. finally hit him and Bivol got majorly wobbled. And so... You know, this wasn't that major of an upset. Joe Smith Jr., if he lands on somebody, they're, they're going to have problems. Better be if, if they make this fight, and I hope that they do, because it'll be the two, perhaps the two biggest punchers at 175 facing off, and that's always, um, you know, that's always fun. But if Joe Smith Jr. hits Better Biv, he's going to go. We've seen Better Biv drop by far lesser fighters than Joe Smith Jr. I mean, Callum Johnson dropped him. And I think Joe Smith Jr. make easy work of a Callum Johnson type of guy. And so I'm definitely looking forward to that fight. Uh, Better be as a guy who's in good fights. He's vulnerable enough. I don't, you know, there's some people out there that think Better be is some elite talent in boxing. And his, his offense is certainly really good. But he's had, he's not without flaws. And I think that perfectly plays into Joe Smith Jr. to make for a really exciting fight. If these guys fight, and I, I, you know, I put this question, posed it, do you think Joe Smith Jr. has what it takes to beat Art or Better Be? I think Joe Smith Jr. has what it takes to beat anybody. Just look at the fact that when we first heard about Joe Smith Jr., he was facing Funfara, who was coming off of his win over Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Funfara looked like he was going to be legit. And Joe Smith Jr. said, uh uh-uh, uh, one round, you're done. So if he connects on Better Be, all bets are off on that fight. And that fight will be one of the more entertaining fights you could make, and I hope they do make it. Would- now, I just watched the fight. I didn't. I didn't watch anything surrounding it. Did were they pushing that? That like winner fights better be of. Well, I did. I didn't really pay attention much to commentary, and I certainly didn't watch anything between the fights, so I can't really answer that. Yeah, don't worry about it. But I did see um, it on, on fan, social media. I would like to. I would like to see that fight. You know, it seems natural, and I would like to see it. You know, it's it's not a huge money fight, but uh, I certainly would like to see it. All right, and then on the undercard, Rob Brandt got a, I believe it was the fifth round stoppage over uh, Vitili Kopolenko. I think that's how you say it. I definitely could not remember his name without looking it up. Uh, Bo Mack, uh, his first fight with Bo Mack, Terrence Crawford's trainer, and um, I don't know, like, Rob Brandt to me is like, all right, he's he's an okay fighter. Tom, you're higher on him than me. Famously, Tom picked Rob Brandt to win a fight that we all thought he was going to get smoked in. But Rob Brandt did lose the rematch, if you recall. So, <laughs> so that's kind of a wash. But um, yeah, it's a moment, maybe. Tom, but uh, not yeah, quite. I, I've always liked Brandt. I mean, he's a guy sort of like, what's the way I was saying this? If, when we were talking about Sean Porter... Sean Porter is a guy who's designed to be competitive at world level fights, but not really dominate and knock out lower level fighters. A guy like Rob Brand or I think like Joshua Clotty kind of fits into the same category um, is good at knocking out lower level guys, but has had problems at the top level. Um, well, I think gee, they, they I don't both... remember Rob Brand ever beating or arguably beating Miguel Cotto. Hmm. Reference to Joshua Clotty for those that don't get oh, it. If I you've see... never seen it. You said Joshua uh, Clotty. Sorry, I'm try- I'm thinking of the, the 135 guy that Tiafimo just knocked out. Oh, Richard Comey. The oh other guy from God, Ghana. I can't... <laughs> wow. 
wow, they're not even close to being the the same name. I can't believe I just did that. Wow, I'm so embarrassed. But yeah, Richard Comey. I'm a fan of Comey too, but yeah, yeah. sorry, Comey, Comey is the, that type of... Actually, it's funny because Joshua Clotty actually was kind of like that too. I mean, well, like, it made sense, which, you know, if it didn't make sense, I would... I should have just run to it and then added, uh, yeah, but I was not that smooth. But yeah, I mean, um, like, Brant has a lot of nice knockouts in his career against lower-level opponents, but, you know, we we haven't really seen him perform well at the highest level yet, and and this, this didn't really clear that up, you know? Uh, when I was talking about knocking out guys outside the top 100... Uh, box rec currently has him at 136, you know, and that, you know, is basically where he was going into the fight. I mean, he came in as a heavy underdog and got knocked out, you know. So that's, I, that's the type of matchmaking I was referring to when I was talking about that when we were on the Sean Porter card. But anyway, yeah, continue. Um, I was going to talk about Kobolenko, but like I, I thought, I was like, you know what? Nobody actually wants to hear that. So we'll move on. Regis Progray and Maurice Hooker have both announced this week that they, or well, actually they didn't announce it. Um, uh, the Maurice Hooker signing was announced by Mike Coppinger and the Regis Progray news was broken none other, by none other than us that he, they were going to PBC. So let's, let's. Congrats on that, by the way. Hey, Mike. We, we could break so much news if we actually, uh, did not sign NDAs, but. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you and Rollins deal breaker, uh, deal breakers, uh, news breakers. Yeah. Anyway, keep uh, going. But yeah, let's put these guys against each other. You know, it's, it's funny. People really still want to see this fight, and I never really got the appeal of this fight. Like, if they fight each other, it becomes a loser leaves town fight. And I don't. Well, it's, as of right now, it's not announced they would fight each other. Well, so. they they aren't. They both have fights already signed. Yeah. But. I'm just saying, like, when I was looking at social media, like, people were like, oh, cool. They're, you know, they're both signed to PBC. Hopefully they can still fight. And I'm just like, why? Why do you want that fight? If they, if they lose to one another, it's over for, for them. So I, I would prefer if, like, I don't mind seeing that fight in the future, but right now, no thank you. Let these guys build. Um, and by the way, rather than fight each other, they could actually have a much bigger fight with a bigger name, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, who is the bigger signing for PBC? Is it Maurice Hooker who will fight at 147 or Regis Progray who will be fighting at 140? Regis Progray is staying at 40? Uh, I believe that he will be staying at uh, 140 for the foreseeable future. And that is the foreseeable future, meaning till the end of the year. Um, well, I will qualify by saying uh, I was reported, I think, that Progray is on a fight-to-fight basis. But I'm not really going to worry um, about – sorry – yeah, about that. That's a, that's a little like wink, wink. But um, yeah, if you do the the math here, you'll see that it is not. It, it is the expectation he's going to be staying in the PBC. Correct. Um, which you know, just basic math would dictate that. You know, if he weren't anyone who's not locked into a long term contract at welterweight would want to fight for the PBC. Well, and that, the other and thing, that includes Terrence Crawford. The reason why <laughs> you know, they did not honest. sign, he didn't sign with top rank was because top rank would not promise him a fight with either Josh Taylor right, or Jose right. Ramirez. And right. the timeline that he gave them wasn't good. The timeline was like a minimum of a year before he could fight either of those guys, but they wouldn't promise it. And we both know that those, those guys have their, uh, their eyes set on 147. And like, if you think about it, if Jose Ramirez beats Josh Taylor, why would he fight Regis Progray when he could go to 147 as the undefeated, unified 140-pound champion? If 
Josh Taylor loses to Jose Ramirez, why would he fight Regis Progre immediately? And if he beats Jose Ramirez, well then he's going to probably go up and fight Terrence Crawford on a pay-per-view. Uh, either either one of those, I think Terrence Crawford is the far bigger matchup than to go fight Progre, which, you know, maybe Progre was kind of over... What's the word I'm looking for here? Like, he just didn't know his position there. And I think he looked at it and was like, okay, well, I guess it makes sense. These guys are tied up and they have pretty solid futures ahead of them if they win. The loser probably isn't going to want to fight me because, give. I mean, if he was very competitive with Taylor, I don't know that Taylor would want to just go right back into like, well, let me fight Progre, who almost beat me the first time we fought, coming off of a loss to Jose Ramirez. So, yeah, no, I totally, it's like, the, it, it doesn't, in some ways it would seem to make sense at the top rank side, but in other ways it would seem to not make sense. I, yeah. I, a bunch of good guys at 140, but the goal is not just to fight good guys, it's to make money. And he, he would seem to have a much clearer path at the PBC to, I'm still expecting make his way up to 147. I've been talking about that for like three years, that Regis Perger is a guy who, <laughs> I've joked about this before, but it's true. Like, I literally saw him like not make weight and had to like strip down it away at the Barclays Center. Like, I think it was actually on the... Uh, I don't think Pro Barclays Center, really? Oh yeah, no, definitely, because he was with DeBella. So he would fight on like, the untelevised undercards if PBC shows DeBello was promoting. Oh, you're talking about way back. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. I think it was actually um, Thurman Porter, I think, was that card. Um, but it was one of the CBS cards, I believe. Uh, you know, big broadcast, not just on Showtime. Uh, but anyway, the point is, though, like, he's a guy who, you know, similar to Sean Porter, fought bigger in the amateur. He fought at 152 in the amateur, same as Spence. Uh, was an amateur rival of Spence. Um, always seemed like a guy to me who was just trying to do get something happen at 140 and then move up. Like you see with a lot of guys like Teofimo's talked about how like, you know, he's destined for 140. He's really outgrown 135, but he's just making the weight because he has that fight there with Lomachenko, you know, but Progray keeps making the weight. I mean, kind of same thing like Sean Porter. I mean, so even though I keep expecting to move up, they aren't. But anyway, yeah, regarding Progray, I mean, uh, if he stays at 140 at the PBC, he doesn't necessarily have huge fights, but even at top rank where they probably have a better 140 pound division. I mean, it's not maybe, but you know, the thing is though, if he can't fight, um, Jose Ramirez, because you know, the way the top rank system works, they're the promoter, but these different fighters have different managers and they're not necessarily going to take fights like that, you know? So you have potentially a management problem separating, uh, progray from, Jose Ramirez, Josh Taylor's not going to give him a rematch. There's no real reason to do that. And then, you know, that could build towards a Crawford fight. But what's the roadmap to get to a Crawford fight? Compare that to the PBC side. You know, already a Thurman fight is probably bigger than a Crawford fight. Spence fight definitely is. He has fights he could potentially do with Sean Porter. If you're talking about like, you know, this level of fight where it's maybe like, um, a split pay-per-view or something. So it, it, it just seems more sense to put him in the mix there. Well, um, I mean, and then again, the... if he could, I'll just, just say quick, if he could fight Jose Ramirez next or get a Josh Taylor rematch, great. That would make it a viable option to top rank. If top rank has already made it clear that those fights are going to happen, then he's, he would just be kind of wasting his time. Right. And then the other thing is like, well, what he could have is Adrian Broner, which in terms of like, is this a fight with like major significance? And is this a fight that, you know, 
is going to determine a pound for pound spot. No, but it's going to be an event. And Progre has not been in an event so, thus far. I mean, I guess you could say the fight against Josh Taylor, it was in the UK. It was oh, a pretty... from the stand, yeah, the standpoint of being a draw in America, he has not been an event. Right, no, and this would be the biggest fight of his career, even though the Josh Taylor fight was significantly more, uh, there was a lot more on the line in terms of his legacy. You beat Adrian Broner, and that's a, a big step forward in terms of you becoming viable for welterweights and really every, you know, anybody at 140 as well. And there are options for him at 142 on the PBC side. He could fight Barrios, um, Robert Easter, but I mean those aren't huge money. Fights, they aren't though, huge money games. fights, but they are against guys that have fought on TV before. Barrios will be appearing on the Tank undercard, which also Proge will be appearing on the Tank undercard. Do the math there. So he just he just has to win. I mean Juan Heraldez is not going to be some some walkover for Proge. Juan Heraldez can box a little right. bit. And uh, Prograde could yeah, that, that find himself in trouble in that very first fight. I'm not saying he's going to lose, but there could be some trouble. And then Maurice Hooker, on the other hand, that I, I I don't know. He, he the signing doesn't make as much sense for me as uh, for PBC in terms of like what do they gain from having Hooker? I don't think they gain that much, but for Hooker, it's good because he's got these really good opponents that are going to be like I think if. Maurice Hooker wasn't going to be on the undercard of the Spence Danny Garcia pay per view. Him versus Josecito Lopez could headline an FS1 card. Like that fight is going to be insane because Maurice Hooker, uh, Jose Josecito Lopez, also trained by Robert Garcia. Josecito Lopez uh, has been in plenty of wars over the years, and I think it's safe to say that that fight with Jose Ramirez was a war. Um, could seem like we could get another fight of the year contender out of. Hooker and Josecito Lopez, which like that's exactly what you want on a pay-per-view undercard. You want people to watch, to buy it and be like, damn, that was worth my money. We saw those two guys on the undercard. Those guys had a crazy fight and then the under the pay-per-view main event delivered. So I think Progray is the bigger signing. There's more upside with Progray, but I don't think Hooker is just like a, a complete wash. I think in terms of like, can you get good fights out of Progray? I think that that is also... Um, or that's going to be a yes. You will get good fights out of Maurice Hooker. I don't think Maurice Hooker is going to be in the running to to fight the big dogs, but not everybody can. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is like that's what we were saying. So, I mean, look, uh, Maurice Hooker is coming off of like a pretty gnarly knockout loss to Jose Ramirez. Shout out to just like you know what? Let's see how many years off of his life this guy can right. can lose. To- yeah, a lot of punishment. Uh, well, yeah, it happened kind of suddenly. Anyway, we keep going, but um, I, I think I mean that's an interesting thing because it's like that fight itself, like we talk about, like probably not a huge money fight, but that's just a very good fight for a pay per view undercard, you know. And I mean that's the thing; it's like neither guy, you know, seems to be on the trajectory to be on a pay per view. If Progre fights and beats Broner. If, if, you know, if he knocks out Broner, I mean, that definitely Broner is, I think, without question, the highest in terms of like uh, reward versus risk fighter in the sport right now, probably the single highest. I mean, that means a lot to me that um, the PBC would make that fight happen. I mean, that that's a way of trying to elevate Regis Progre in, into the picture. And like, I've said this, like, I still feel like he has, you know, he's very good and has star potential. 
at 147. He's great on the mic. He's a very interesting personality. We love his sound bites. Um, I, I'm really, really interested to see what he can do at 147. And I'm still just baffled that he would still be fighting at 140. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe there's some plan in place that I just don't understand. But I don't know. Any other thoughts on this? Or I mean, look, are these big signings for PBC? Yes or no? Um, yeah, they're like B plus signings. And you have to consider the context of not just what they do for the PBC but what they take away from top rank in terms of well, continuing to ask for a, a yes or no question, Tom. Proper you give points. me B plus. Yes or no? Are these big signings? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think they're big signings. And I'll frame it this way, okay? This story about PBC signing Regis Prograde and Maurice Hooker is not as big as wondering and the story around Matchroom USA. Like, if you think about it, they could not retain Maurice Hooker. And in general, Masham USA, through their partnership with Debella, were not able to retain Regis Prograde. And this was a great fight between these two guys. And judging by social media, there was a, a, a group of people out there who did want to see that fight. This was a fight that people wanted to see. Certainly probably more than they want to see Danny Jacobs fight Gabe Rosado. So what does this say about them? That they couldn't keep these guys. <laughs> like, that's a big story. Like, people aren't talking about this. And I don't mean to, like, you know, come down on them. But, like, because no, I, I don't yeah. think I don't think they're, like, <laughs> perform days in, them, like, the whole crew. I, I don't know that they're in major trouble so much as Matchroom USA. Now, you have to make the distinction here, okay? As a streaming service, I think they're still going to be... Uh, around, I don't think they're going out of business anytime soon, especially because they're they have success in other markets. But in terms of Matchroom USA, which is distinct from Golden Boy, which is distinct from Canelo, what is going on? I mean, who's still left? We've seen a bunch of people flock from the, from the herd. Danny Roman, although we have discussed that there was only a sort of co-promotional deal, we've seen Michael Hunter get cut. He's gone out in the cold, all on his own. Saying that there's a bidding war for his services, but I ain't seen him fight anywhere, but that's neither here nor there. Then you have Regis Progre, Maurice Hooker, these guys gone. What is going on? And I haven't seen any real definitive answers about what is going to happen to Matchroom USA because all, all signs point with nothing on the schedule, only rumors about what they hope to accomplish. Something is up here, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's an understatement. It's, I mean it's just funny. I I I, I laugh thinking talking about how this impacts uh, top rank this signing, and it's it just it really speaks to you know uh, Matchroom USA and Dayson being complete afterthought at this point, and it it really just is. I mean that's not shade. It's just an objective description. I mean. Well, I think we'll uh, get into eventually the current happenings with Canelo. But um, look, compare this. Yes, there's a pandemic, but compare this two days in last fall, you know, 12 months ago and 18 months ago when they had, you know, fight season uh, centered around um, Canelo Jacobs and uh, Joshua Ruiz won. And then, the you know, fight season after that. Uh, centered around Canelo Kovalev and Joshua Ruiz rematch and compare it to this fall. I mean, uh, you have all of the people in the press who are in the pocket of Dazen trying to spin Luke Campbell versus Ryan Garcia like it's the event of the season. But that's one pretty good like B fight. And that's all they have going. There was supposed to be a Golden Boy show at the end of this month. 
that got canceled because the main event fell out. But who knows if that was even, you know, who knows if that's even the whole story, if the Canelo economy isn't working. I mean, it's just it's a complete mess. There's no other way of saying it. I mean, they're asking for people. This is exactly why people didn't sign up for them for yearly plans, because there was never any certainty of what was going to happen a month from now, two months from now, whatever. And we're seeing that. I mean, there's just there's like. They are not functioning as a you know network streaming service in a way that can reasonably expect people to sign up for it to watch fights. I mean, this is just ridiculous. You know, the it's concerning because first of all, I I did say that there's a, a complete distinction between Matchroom USA and Canelo and Golden Boy. There is a distinction there, but. If we were to take a step back and just look at the streaming service as a whole, like if you can't make Canelo's fights work, is anything else worth it? Because can you survive without Canelo? And I know you have to pay Canelo a lot of money, but still there are people that will only sign up for Canelo. That may be the only times when you're actually experiencing something close to profitability. Is it worth it if you don't have Canelo? That is a major question. And like, I just wonder, like, Maurice Hooker, you couldn't retain him? It, or, you know, you could say, well, possibly this is the effect of like all the guys that they initially signed up who got the money uh, that they got at first and they see that money's not available anymore. They don't want to be, they don't, they just don't want to do business with you anymore. And maybe it takes the next group of guys who come in and are actually looking for any opportunity that they could get. Then those are the guys who may come and sign. But the question is, like, at this point, who's available now? Because everybody's either had their shot with them, they're with PBC, they're with Top Rank, they're with Golden Boy. There ain't that much left on the market. And they have some they have a couple of real talents on their on their stable, like Ushik and Devin Haney. And obviously neither guy's a draw whatsoever at this point. Although, you know, Devin Haney, we believe, is going to be one of the you know, the, the, the faces of boxing going forward and Ushik with the right opponent could do some business, but like realistically, they don't got much right now. And I just wondered with, or well, I guess Dazen Group is now what, who would be considered the 40% owner of Matchroom USA. What happens here? And, and that's all my question. I'm not saying anything's the problem with Matchroom in the UK because clearly you got Anthony Joshua. You've got this Dillian White rematch. You've got Campbell fighting Ryan Garcia. Um, their fighters are still getting opportunities and they – well, actually, I don't know if the Sky deal has been renewed and I haven't seen anything about that. But the Sky deal re, uh, expires next year and I ain't heard nothing about renegotiation. And renegotiations usually begin at the two-year mark before – it expires with the one year to go is when the real heavy negotiation and announcements come. And we're past both of those points, I believe. So that's something to watch. And with Dazen launching in the UK, possibly they're going to try to take their business. Matchroom will take their business over to Dazen as well, which, you know, judging by things have judging by the way things have gone here in the US, that could only be seen as a complete and utter catastrophe waiting to happen especially given how successful they currently are. Um, take Just, you know, taking yourself away from the eyeballs that you have and the big network support that has multiple ways to funnel new fans onto your product. I mean, that is a little troubling, but hey, I guess the analysts have figured out that this is a cool risk to take. But I don't know what's going on with Matchroom USA and with nothing on the schedule, that is troubling. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, this feels like the final year of HBO, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. I mean, it, it this feels like contractual obligation, you know, theater playing out. I mean, something that, you know, going back to that, we've talked about this many times, but me going to the very first press conference about for Days In and then later their uh, their launch when they announced all of the, the fighters in the initial roster, you know, they... The word out of that was that, you know, when they talked about one billion dollar eight year deal, we found out later that it was actually, um, you know, two years plus options on the other years. And then really what we heard was it's actually more like 18 months. And after about 18 months, they'll sort of start to figure, you know, it's like. I, I think the gambit was like Hearn has 18 months to demonstrate that this is going to work to days in. Otherwise they would start to wind things down in anticipation of that two year mark. And certainly feels like that. I mean, you know, we've continued, we've talked about this ad nauseum and I, I won't give the long explanation again, but it's like a startup spends money to try to build an engine, you know, to build a money tree, basically to build an engine, which makes more money than you're putting in. They haven't succeeded to do at doing that. So at a certain point, they were just throwing good money after bad. This was demonstrated in the fight seasons that they did. You know, they just they didn't have a high enough ceiling and from the Canelo fights and then their churn rate was too high. So they were losing people in the interim and their their annualized subscriber number was terrible. You know, from the financial figures we have seen, you know, when they talk about the high numbers, those don't even come close to the representing accurately what the numbers were, you know, in an annualized sense for their average subscriber number. So, I I mean, it's just, I don't know. I mean, we've seen this played out. Like I think when it's Sunday puncher was very vocal. I mean, you, you and Fred certainly um, in terms of their business model, not looking like it was going to make sense. As soon as the first Canelo numbers came out, we saw, okay, they didn't hit a high enough number. They were hoping for as high as 2 million and they got 600,000. Um, speaking of the Jacobs fight, like that's not good. Uh, and it didn't go up and their churn continued to go bad and they were having to spend an enormous amount of money just to keep those lower levels. That's not a business. You know, that's just you're losing money and then you're deciding essentially going into a controlled bankruptcy where they're talking about selling off their Japanese unit. They're the one. US- well, right, but that's the point. It's like that's what I mean in terms of like a controlled bankruptcy. You know, it's like they're they're just trying to sort of chop it up. I mean, they've they've let a huge amount amount of the sport sports rights lapse. Um, you know, they canceled the MLB show without even announcing that they were. You know, <laughs> without even announcing it, it, it was. Uh, you know, they canceled it. And, you know, that's the situation we're in. It's just like, again, it, it feels like the last year of HBO Boxing where they might have certain obligations. I, I don't know what game they're playing with Canelo right now. I think it's looking increasingly unlikely that he'll never fight on the network again. But, you know, we'll Ooh, see. We've heard, it, we're seeing rumblings that they're trying to – I'll say this. Based on what we're currently seeing, I don't see it happen. But we're hearing rumbles, rumbling that they are trying to restructure – Maybe there's more going on there than I realize as far as can some functioning of day, version of Dazen exist. But the version of Dazen where they're spending $100 million per fight season is not going to continue. Um, that's a bold prediction that you think that Canelo's not going to fight on there again. Because I think, look, 
I've yeah, always I would, I would stood by my claim that I, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd put my level of certainty at I would bet someone fifty dollars he's never going to fight on the network again. Fifty dollars, five zero. If anybody wants to take Tom, take some money from Tom, uh, you know Tom Cody SP on Twitter. I don't know, figure it out. Um, I I don't know about that. I I've always asserted that they will survive the duration of Canelo's deal. Only problem is, no, no, I'm, yeah, I'm going to jump in here and, and defend. You can make your argument, but I, I will very succinctly defend why I'm saying that. I don't know that this will be succinct, but I know you'll defend it. So let's hear it. Look, what's Dazen's current subscriber number in the U.S.? That's a no, but I'm just I'm asking in a rhetorical way. But let's say it could be as low as two hundred thousand. Okay, I think that's realistic. Let's sure. say they have two hundred thousand subscribers in the U.S. What do they get be a for spending? High. Forty, uh, let's say forty-five million dollars to put on a Canelo fight, and I'm saying that's Canelo plus undercard plus opponent plus some minimum amount of you know event before or after that to make a mini fight season. They what could what they get for that possibly add about six hundred thousand. And I think six hundred thousand subscribers against think, one opponent. No, I, I, I'm well. I'm just saying best case scenario if everything goes to according to plan, they could possibly add up to 600,000 subscribers, I believe. You're saying get get to that level. They could. So if the Jacobs and, and Kovalev fights did around 600,000. So, I, I, again, is that worth 40 million? Is that worth $45 million um, to have that for one month? I mean, because, you know, that's the whole thing with their business model. They, they've only wanted to talk in terms of the peaks, but when we've looked at the actual financials that we have for them, the, the average number over the course of the year, meaning like the actual revenue they get, is so much lower than that. There's so much churn. So if they're starting at 200 now and they go to 600, how much revenue do they actually capture before it goes down again? You know, and again, if you're talking about spending $40 million, just the math doesn't add up. No, I mean, it's even like um, ad, you know, companies who are looking to buy ad times, you know, commercials during during shows they don't look for the peak they don't say like oh this peaked at nine nine hundred million people but it averaged two million viewers and that's obviously not the that they're not going to spend ad money on something that peaked super high but averaged something low like it's just you want to have your commercials going to run three times during a show you at least want to make sure that you're going to get your money's worth each time and saying that oh we peak at this point so it might be only worth if you can demonstrate like, oh, yeah, you always peak at this part, you know, this these 15 minutes of a show, you, maybe it's worth it. Uh, but, you know, you you want that consistency. But the problem is when you sign up for the consistency package with them, that means you are paying a like a, like what are you paying like eight bucks a month if you sign up for for the yearly. That's eight bucks a month. So you're you're as the consumer only paying eight bucks for Canelo's fights, which is good for you, but terrible for them. Because it does not translate to more people signing up. If it translated to more people signing up, then it makes sense. But it doesn't. And that's one of the things that we've talked about a long time on this podcast. Is that one of the tropes that you'll find on boxing social media, any forum really, is that people think that if you lower the price, more people will come. But that's really whatsoever not at all true and if you listen to people who make decisions in boxing like steven espinoza they will explain that to you that just because you make something cheap doesn't mean people will buy and you wind up losing money if you try to go that route you know i i, I it's kind of like a quick fix but it doesn't work 
Yeah, just to explain just one more for anyone, just very quickly for anyone who didn't get what I mean. It's like, say their peak subscriber number was 600,000 during the months Canelo fought. But really, over the course of the year, it averaged at about 300,000 over the course of the year. So maybe some months it was 200,000, it was 600,000 during the months when Canelo fought. If you do the rough math, if that was the average subscriber number over the course of the year, and let's list there, you know, if you're mixing the $20 a month plan versus the $10 a month plan, and you, you say they're average revenue per customer is $15, you know, 300,000 times 15 times 12 is 54 million. Then you're talking about a huge chunk of that goes to, you know, uh, administrative costs. Um, a huge chunk of that goes to the, the, the sources that capture the money, like the, the Apple store and the Google store, you know, and you get some number less than that. If they're having to spend $200,000 on boxing purses, let alone anything else they want to spend money on, you know, again, that's 54 million versus 200 million in purses, right? So, I mean, when you start talking about what if they just have Canelo and no one else, and they put on two $45 million fights per year. Right, I'm saying if that's really the minimum level of paying Canelo an opponent and some minimal amount of extra programming, that's still $90 million per year just for Canelo business. Uh, again, versus around you know 50 to $60 million in revenue. And that's a very realistic number. I, it, it just doesn't add up. That, that So anyway, I said it was going to be quick. I've made my point. That's why I don't see Canelo fighting again, because their business model is just that broken. There's no version of it that works, especially with Canelo being their, their single biggest bill at this point. Um, if you like this kind of stuff, I, I this whole topic of like, you know, Canelo's worth. I did a an episode of this on the Patreon feed, I believe. I don't remember when I did it, Tom. If you listen to it, maybe you know, but I I've cannot remember. I've all of those. What... I can't. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I, I know it was recently, but I can't remember exactly when it was. But this is the kind of thing we get to. So, in case you wanted to sign up for that and get some more podcasts, you can do that. Um, but yeah, we should get more into Canelo now, and that is, um, so he wins or no, no, no. They were he's mandated, I guess, by the WBC. To fight, he's <laughs> really yeah. There's, yeah, there's a, there's a very specific way to put this. You know, thank you, David Benavides, for uh, missing weight and creating this situation here. But um, so Canelo and Yildirim basically are ordered to fight for the WBC super middleweight title, which is now vacant thanks to David Benavides and his stellar discipline. So, how likely do you think it is that Canelo? will actually fight Avni Yildirim. If you don't remember, people, if you don't remember who I'm talking about, who who is... I, I imagine there are some of you listening to this that are like, who's Avni Yildirim? He's the guy that Chris Eubank Jr. just like completely slept in the World Boxing Super Series. It was World Boxing Super Series, right? First round? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think it was actually an out bracket, if I remember correctly. I think uh, they had to do that fight uh, don't worry about it keep keep going yeah either way it was the first fight in the world boxing super Series. well either way um what do you think do you think canelo will face him um i would say um you know <laughs> you have to go through so many levels of uh the hierarchy of thought experiment here but you know if i'm saying i don't think canelo's gonna fight on days and again what does that mean that means he's gonna fight on pay-per-view which will be a pretty soft transition uh, I don't think that'll be a hard transition at all, um, which is another reason why I think it's likely to happen. Because if 
Dazen is not a posi- in a position to be able to pay Canelo, and Canelo can just pretty easily make money on pay-per-view again. He can do that really without even really causing much financial damage to anyone, which is why I think it could very possibly happen. And then if he fights on pay-per-view with some new entity, which would presumably either be ESPN Top Rank or PBC and Fox or Showtime, Yildirim would make sense as an opponent. I, I, I kind of think of him being the sort of level of like the Rocky Fielding, where it's Canelo fighting in this new um, entity, wanting to get a fight done reasonably quickly so he doesn't lose the whole year. You know, this is a fight he could do this fall without having to worry about the, you know, the challenge of the fight and training too specifically for an opponent. So when when those pieces fall into place, I think it's extremely likely because it's just, I think, you know, the two sides of it, I think he's probably going to fight on pay-per-view and not days in. Not saying it's 100% chance. I'm saying that's my, you know, like I said, I, I have the confidence where I'd bet someone $50 that that's the, the likelihood. And then if that happens, I think it's likely he'd want to take the fight sooner than later so we can get something going this fall and not lose out on more time during the peak earning years of his career. And I think that's the level of opponent he'd be looking for. Uh, I don't think there's any chance that he fights Yildirim whatsoever. I think, you know, I'm not going to doubt that Yildirim's team's going to try hard and they already said that they're going to get in contact with Al and have Al Heyman figure this out. And I am not doubting the incredible wherewithal that we've seen Al Heyman show in boxing to make certain things happen. You know, all respect there. But I just don't think Canelo and Yildirim can come to a, a are going to come to some sort of agreement where networks, they're going to be able to figure out the network. And the reason why I don't think that is like, so there's a real problem here. And that is that they can't pay for Canelo's opponents. They weren't willing to pay for Callum Smith. And like Callum Smith is a far better opponent for Canelo than Avni Yildirim. Like we're like, that's not like you, you say anything otherwise. And we got a problem. Like I will fight you. Okay. That's how confident I am that Canelo Alvarez fighting Callum Smith is a better fight than Avni Yildirim. I mean, like if you're, if you're uh, like, if you like are a big fan of Yildirim and maybe that's why like, okay, fine. You know, I'll give it to you. But for the most part, everyone else objectively looking at this, Callum Smith, better opponent, right? And they only wanted to pay $17.5 for that fight, which is half of what they should be paying Canelo based off of his contract, which Canelo has an issue with. And they made an evaluation of what Canelo brings to the table in terms of revenue, viewers, subscribers, etc. And they looked at an opponent, the level of Callum Smith, higher level than Avni Yildirim, and they said that $17.5 for Canelo is what it's worth. You... You talk about Avni Yildirim as the opponent and what he's worth and what they would be willing to pay. Canelo's going to get half of that 17.5. They're going to say, you got to take 8.5. And Canelo's going to say, I'm not fighting. I'm not fighting. You guys are not paying me that little. You put on this contract that I'm making this amount of money. And the I looked at reporting from the time that this deal was made, you know, all the the quotes that were given. And what I found is that this is the minimum. So they can't even like, they, this is like asking Canelo for a favor, but he actually based off of the reporting is, has every right to say, no, you pay me because that's what I'm guaranteed. 
And so do I think that Canelo's going to accept less money just for the amazing opportunity to fight for the WBC light heavyweight title against Avni Yildrim? Does he uh, want super it that- What did I say? Light heavyweight. Close enough. But yes, super middleweight title. Just um, letting you know I'm listening. Yeah, no, I no, no. I, I got it. Thank you. I Because, I, you know, I don't like when I hear that in podcasts, although I do laugh. But, you know, I don't think so. I don't think Canelo's that convicted it, uh, in his decision that he wants that WBC super middleweight title. I mean, maybe he is. But, like, you ask, like, I would fight Canelo, okay? And I would probably lose, but I would fight Canelo. But if you're going to tell me that, like, $8.5 million is the difference between fighting him and getting a title or whatever, like, I don't, you know, I don't care. I want the 8.5. Um... Actually, that didn't work out. I, I lost my train of thought there. But anyway, the point is Canelo ain't accepting $8.5 million for that fight. He's not he's not accepting seventeen point five. Like, the guy's got thirty five guaranteed. They got to figure out something around that, and that's on them. And so I don't think that they can come to that conclusion. But then I also don't think that they're going to say, well, you know what? Go fight on Showtime. Uh, you can do pay-per-view and, you know, go let them pay you what they want. And you can come back. Like, they're not going to say it. They're going to be like, no, 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 no. We are trying to make this work. You're going to fight on our network. You're going to get what we need. You're going to get a, 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 an amount, a denomination in which we believe is, like, good for both of us. And Canelo's either going to say, no, I guess I'll fight somebody else. Um, or, or, or something else that I was thinking of is, oh, is this the setup? Is this the setup? Is like Canelo's is Canelo's team trying to set them up to get him out of his contract? Is Canelo setting his team up to force them to pay him his money? See, one thing about the Ali Act, and I don't know that it covers here, but there's a clause in the Ali Act that says uh you cannot one of the contingencies, I, I don't know if that's the right word here, one of the contingencies of signing a, a deal with the network is that you can't sign, be forced to sign a deal with the network longer than 12 months in the event of a mandatory fight. So if, you know, to make it easier, if they came to Yildrum and said, in order to fight Canelo, you have to fight, sign a two-year agreement with us in order to fight him, and it's for this mandatory WBC title fight, they can, Yildrum can say, this is not, you can't actually enforce this contract legally. I'm not bound by this contract because this is longer than 12 months. You know, they could say, uh, you know, it is a 12-month contract. And that would essentially cover like a rematch clause for Yildrim following Canelo. That is okay. But um, for Canelo, on the other hand, he has a mandatory fight and a deal that extends well into the future. And it's possible that maybe you have some legal ground there to stand on. I don't necessarily... I'm not a lawyer, so I can't connect those dots the way maybe a, a skilled lawyer can. But I don't know. Maybe they're like we're seeing a setup here, and it could be a setup from either side. It could be a setup for maybe them to cut Canelo loose, or Canelo to cut them loose, or maybe they just don't like Canelo. I don't know. But this is a juicy situation, and it has nothing to do with whether or not Canelo fights Yildrum or not, and certainly not the actual execution of that fight because I think the fight is terrible. So, boy, I, I, I've so strongly disagreed with so many things that you said in this. Oh, really? Yeah, well, I mean, first off, I mean, you said a mouthful and sort of like there were a lot of things which is sort of obscure boxing news that I think you took for granted that people have already heard. So, I mean, just to get a few things out of the way. So, I mean, just to be clear, Canelo's team requested the Yildrum fight with the WBC. Uh-huh. So let's start there. They requested that. 
the WBC was trying to figure out who to fill the vacant, who, who would fight for the vacant title. Well, Yildirim, I think, was already he was already going to be one. Right, exactly, because of the controversial ending to his fight with Anthony Durrell. Okay, Canelo petitioned, and he was granted it because he's the biggest star in, biggest star in the sport by far. So the WBC said, great, yes, you can do that. Okay, um, so that there's that piece. The other thing was this piece about Dazen wanting to pay Canelo half of his minimum. And it's been weird for me seeing like people talk about that online and interpret it as face value. And there's no way that Canelo would ever accept half of his minimum when he could make more than that fighting on pay-per-view. I mean, to some extent, it depends on how the contract is written. Right. But if that's truly his minimum and their goal is to renegotiate the contract. I mean, first off, when they're saying half, that's just a negotiating tool. They're just, you know, it's like if you try to buy a house and you ask for half of the asking price, the seller is not going to say yes, but that might be something that you do just to signal, I'm going to look aggressively for a price below the asking price. And you just do that as the opening salvo just to say, well, here's my starting number. Let's meet somewhere in the middle. And you're, you know, you're instantly changing the conversation from what the starting number is. You're just making a dramatic point to say it's going to be something less than that. And I think the thing you can't forget with Canelo is that the, the, the foundation of all lawsuits is damages. You have to be able to demonstrate there's some actual damages and if Canelo could fight on pay-per-view and make more money and Dazen can't afford to pay him that, as, I, as I, I kind of went through, yes, I'm doing, you know, back of the envelope calculations, but it's like simple math shows that Dazen, it does not make sense for Dazen to do business with Canelo anymore. You know, OK, so Canelo could make more money fighting on pay-per-view. Dazen can't afford him. Then you're looking at, okay, what is actually happening here? And the way that I interpret it as this is both sides sort of negotiating what this exit is going to look like. Canelo is negotiating for an opponent to demonstrate, you know, an economic loss. He has a fight waiting to go. Dazen is rejecting it. You're saying they can't afford the opponent. They can't afford Canelo. The opponent side of it is irrelevant. They can't afford the $35 million to pay Canelo. Um, that's where I'm coming from. So, um, again, I, I just see like you just lay out the numbers in the same way that they let the MLB show go in the way that they let a lot of rights go in other areas of their portfolio. I just think it makes by far the most sense. I mean, Canelo, given that he can fight on pay-per-view, there's another version of this where the two sides are linked together, where Canelo says, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to fight you in court to get paid my minimum. And there's a version of it where Dazen says, okay, take us to court, but you're not fighting. We'll just declare bankruptcy eventually for Dazen USA. You'll never make that money back, and Canelo will have wasted. I mean, again, these are the things that happen. I don't think I they're mean, Don King, but that, that's very Don no, King-esque. I, mean, I, I, I just – I think it's – the point is, though, you could have a thing where they could each – battle each other legally for Dazen to say, we can tie up your career, so you have to accept less than $35 million per fight. Or Canelo saying, uh, I'm going to fight to the death for my minimum. I'm not going to get in the ring again. 
and just it just seems to make so much more sense to me that Canelo could just go his separate way, fight a guy like Yildirim where it doesn't matter as much that he's not going to have a live gate because it's, you know, the era of coronavirus and just move on, you know, and like uh, I'll let you respond first. But I have, you know, a separate uh, strain to take that on. Well, I mean, look, the thing is, we've heard mostly about them not being able to pay for his opponents. Now, this is a new thing where it's like, oh, actually, we can't pay Canelo now. Um, Look, no matter how you slice it, you know, you've laid out a couple of options and certainly all of those are viable. There are probably a couple other ones that we haven't discussed yet that are also viable. But the thing here that I if we want to take a step back and just be like, how serious is the situation? They don't deal with Canelo like Canelo doesn't go through Golden Boy, doesn't go through John Skipper. He goes through their legal team. And Canelo's go-between is one of the top labor lawyers in the state. You know, that's kind of a big deal. I don't think any fighter in the world really has to use a labor lawyer to negotiate and to deal with their network and their promoter. That, to me, is very concerning, and it kind of tells you where Canelo's team is looking if they have to have a labor lawyer, that must mean that they see something that maybe they're not being treated right or maybe something is not being honored it, that they feel the other side is obligated to honor. And so that's where all the speculation begins, by the way, at least for me, is like, you know, we, I, I've, you and I and you listening to this have, over the years, we've heard lots of stuff like you know, similar to this, you know, we've heard network problems, promotion problems, manager problems, everything you can think of. But the thing that to me is very serious here is that there is a lawyer involved on Canelo's side and there are lawyers involved on the other side. We don't hear about that very often. Um, Did you want to pose that other thing you were talking about? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to two things. One is just an immediate comment to you. I mean, when you say we don't hear this a lot, look, Canelo is the biggest star in the sport. And he's not able to fight, right? If Canelo can't fight this fall, that is about $30 million in pay-per-view, you know, what could be pay-per-view revenue, just that's gone. You know, I I, I mean, that's why I think it's extremely likely something is going to happen. I'm I'm not saying, again, I would bet my house that, Canelo is going to end up fighting on pay-per-view. I, I, I obviously this is all speculation, but it's just you just look at all of the factors involved. It's just inconceivable that, you know, again, when you're talking about the foundation of any lawsuit is what are the damages? You know, it's like if Canelo can't fight this fall because he's caught in a, a lawsuit with Dazen, then you're talking about whatever their dispute is plus you know, $35 million in loss value, you know, then, okay, push it another six months. That's another $35 million. You know, that's just being racked up. And, you know, I, it just seems completely untenable to me when he has the extremely viable option of just fighting on pay-per-view. Now, could this be a game to try to get to the point where Dazen's doing pay-per-views? That's something which has been discussed. Uh, as a way of making up the money, you know, this is this is why I said it's sort of like it, the balls in Dazen's court to figure out a different business model. You know, that's certainly possible. And and, and the, the thing I was saying as the separate point, something you touched on was that there was 
uh, a comment online that Yildirim's team said that Al Heyman was negotiating on their behalf to try to get a Canelo pay-per-view going, to try to keep the fight alive. Okay, we don't know if that's true. That could just be made up by his team. It could be questionable, you know, reporting anyway in terms of vetting the story. But the, the other thing I wanted to do is just a very quick thought experiment of like, what would happen if there were a deal with Canelo and Showtime and the PBC to do Canelo pay-per-views? You could deal, do a deal very similar to Floyd fighting on pay-per-view on Showtime, where Showtime with the deep pockets of CBS and the huge amount of money CBS or Showtime brings in from its roughly 30 million subscribers to bankroll, you know, big Canelo guarantees going into pay-per-views, very similar to the Floyd deal. And you have a, opponents lined up. Let's say you plant Canelo's flag at 168. This this fight is for the WBC 168-pound title. You have guys like Caleb Plant, David Benavidez, Jermall Charlo. Um, you know, I mean, those those fights are there. You have, you know, more names as well, which could come into the picture. And, you know, you have to say that those B-sides are, you know, roughly of a comparable level of the type of opponents Floyd fought when he was fighting on Showtime during his big deal with them. You know, it just the math starts to make so much sense. Um, again, not saying it will happen. I'm saying it's a thought experiment. But anyway, that was my other point. No, I think it's a good point. Um, for the sake of things, though, we should also say that, you know, shout out to David Benavides for missing weight and bringing light to a situation or making a situation just a lot worse. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have much else to add here, but I think this is one of the biggest stories of boxing. And frankly, I don't know that it's been covered enough uh, or at least, no, I mean, and it's, it's definitely been... not being covered correctly. I was about to say that part. So many, you know, fighters, which are al- so many media members, which are aligned with different networks, you know? Yes, exactly. Definitely not being covered well. No. And, um, you know, that's a shame. I mean, I still think the Matchroom USA story is super interesting. Like, what the hell are they doing? And do they have a future? Like, if, like, I'm not saying that, you, you know, if they said, we're just not going to call it Matchroom USA anymore, but Matchroom in general, the UK version of it will come to the US occasionally. All right, fine. But I thought Matchroom USA was going to be a real thing. But anyway, um, moving on, we got a couple of fights this weekend. Um, Jose Ramirez will be headlining against Victor Postal. This is a. Finally, the fight is going to happen after a couple of failed attempts to make this fight happen. Victor Postol is, you know, he's earned his shot to against Ramirez, I guess. Uh, we kind of know yeah. Victor Postol's level. <laughs> he lost to Josh Taylor already. He's lost to Terrence Crawford. Victor Postol's a good fighter. You know, he's a good guy. He's got really not much power, but he can box a little bit. You know, he's just a good fighter. I think he's probably slightly better than Sebastian Formella, but not terribly. Like he's, we're not gonna look at Victor Polsto here and say like, oh, you know, Jose Ramirez is in any trouble. We expect Jose Ramirez to take a couple of rounds, figure out Victor Polsto, and just start walking him down. I mean, at least that's my read on this. Do you have a different read? I'm interested to see it. I mean, Victor Postal is a guy who's sort of hot and cold, but the hot's not that hot. Um, you know, I, I mean, he was uh, competitive in losing a wide decision against Josh, you know, as competitive as you can call it to lose a wide decision against Josh Taylor. 
you know, same thing against Crawford. I mean, he had his moments and went the distance. If you compare to the amount of guys that Crawford has, you know, blown out, you know, in hindsight, that's, that's a relatively good performance. Um, I think at the end of the day, Jose Ramirez is still probably better. Jose Ramirez is a guy who's ended up just being better than I thought he was going to be. I mean, he sort of reminds me of Danny Garcia in that way. Um, coming up didn't seem that good, had a lot of questionable performances, but has been able to show up in big fights. So, you know, um, could Victor Postal make this look like the Jose Sabeda fight where it looks very competitive and there's a little drama when it goes to the scorecards? I think that's probably the best you're going to say. Like, I don't think there's any version of this where Postal, like, knocks Ramirez down or something or makes it more dramatic than that. I, th- I think this feels to me ranges somewhere between, like, uh, a wide Jose Ramirez win, uh, possibly uh, hurting Postal, if Postal's a little more shopworn than we realize. Um, and, you know, on the closer side, maybe a competitive decision, with which Jose Ramirez... Uh, would probably win just being, you know, the ultimate A side in this situation. Um, Something that I thought of while you were talking is Victor Pulso's another one of those guys. We were thinking of guys uh, before we started the podcast of guys who know when to go down, guys who know when they're hurt to immediately just go down rather than try to stand up and take more punishment and just risk getting stopped. Alexander Povetkin is definitely one of those guys who. The moment he, like he gets hit hard enough, he'll just go down. And uh, Hassan and Dom historically was one of those guys who you know he gets like dropped three times by David Lemieux, but still wins a decision. And uh, Victor Postel is one of those guys. He's been down. Well, didn't win a decision in that fight, but yeah, it man, made who it can remember that? Anyway, yeah, continue. I was so close to being right. Uh, oh yeah, that 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 was a good fight. Um, but yeah, the Kid Chocolate fight played it exactly the same way. Not knocked down a ton of times, but didn't yeah. Quillen get dropped in that fight? I can't even remember. I don't think so, but that's way off topic. Uh, but yeah, so this should be a uh, an okay fight. I, I would I would say that both. Uh, I mean, it's an it's an okay fight. I think people will think it's going to be more competitive because they recognize the B side's name. But like, let's be real here. Jose Ramirez is a unified champion at 140 pounds. Victor Polsto. Uh, is just a guy that's been a guy for a long time. You know, when did he fight Crawford on pay-per-view? Was that 2015? It's crazy if it's been a full five years, but uh, 2016 in July. So it's been four years. Wow. Still he's, been, he's been on the scene for a while, and he still has no notable win in his career apart from that Lucas Matisse win, which, you know, Lucas Matisse was just gone at that point. Uh, on Fox, Arizlandi Laura. I'll talk about that for two more seconds. I just say, like, I, I, I've said this before about fights, like, and I don't take this lightly. Like, this is a fight I will watch, <laughs> you know, when the boxing landscape is so cluttered. This definitely rises to that level. Uh, it's worth checking out. Anyway, um, yeah. We can move. Arizlandi Laura is going to fight Greg Vendetti. I don't know where they found Greg Vendetti. Like, I try to look this dude up. I, I mean, right, I, actually, I did. I have, I remember, sorry, sorry. I need to go back. The, the the last thing I forgot to mention about the fight, which is actually significant. So the matchmaking of this fight, we're talking about, you know, cynical top rank matchmaking. This is a uh, sanctioning body mandated fight, which doesn't necessarily mean that much. But I mean, this is a fight that's happening because Ramirez has to take the fight, not because his team decided this is a showcase fight for us. Uh, and apparently, um, 
Al Heyman is uh, backing Postal. Yeah, so Postal's a PBC if, guy. Right. He's actually promoted so, by TGB. Yeah, well, for this fight, yeah. No, I think TGB, like, promotes Victor Postal. Uh, I'm not going to – I I don't know, but, I mean, considering his uh, – where was his last fight? Oh, yeah, his last fight was a TGB fight. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, anyway, yeah. I mean, he's he's a PBC guy now, uh, had one fight under the banner, and he, he goes into this fight. So he's actually had a lot. Be, if, if there's, you know, a shocking upset, he'll be back on the PBC side. But, look, I, if I just – a shocking upset, he's going to have that rematch clause invoked. No, this is uh, sanctioning body. Uh, I, I uh, imagine that they made a deal for it, but who knows? But, yeah, but again um, – I, I just say I would not be surprised if this looks more like the Jose Sabeda fight. Um, Which is to say that very close and could go either way. Ramirez still gets the decision. For those of right. you who, who have not seen that fight. Good fight. You should go watch it if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, so the PBC card on Fox will be headlined by Arizon Dilar and Greg Vendetti. Like I spent quite some time looking up Greg Vendetti to find out who the hell this guy is. Apparently... He's signed to the Dropkick Murphys um, boxing promotion. <laughs> if you don't know who that is, like, the, you know that song from uh, The Departed, uh, like the Irish sounding song that is like now used in like lots of commercials. That band has a boxing promotion and that's where Greg Vendetti's from. Uh, at least this is what I've been told. I, I love I, it. Only in There's boxing. not a lot of stuff about Greg Vendetti out there. So don't, I don't know. You don't hear about this with uh, the NFL. You know, but yeah. no, no, no. So anyway, look, this this fight is what it is. It is a mismatch, I believe. I don't know. Who knows? Greg Vendetti might be like the 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 unsung hero, the uh, this guy that nobody's ever heard of, but just waiting for his opportunity. I don't know. Arizona Lara is old, and he doesn't look like he's got much legs underneath him anymore. So who knows? This could turn out to be a wild affair. Greg Vendetti could be another Joe Smith Jr who is just waiting to unveil his godlike power. I doubt it. But the real draw of this card is Alfredo Angulo and Caleb Truax, which should be a great fight. Alfredo Angulo is coming off his win over Peter Quillen, which everyone thought, you know, all right, Peter Quillen's going to have like a little run at 168. He's going to get through Alfredo Angulo, who's just, the only person in boxing with slower hands than him is Joe Joyce. And, uh, you know, that'll be the end of Alfredo Angulo. Well, Angulo proved that he's still got a hell of a lot of power. And despite being very slow, he finds a way to land. Caleb Truax, on the other hand, is coming off an Achilles tear, which stopped his rematch with Peter Quillen. Was it, did Quillen fight both of these guys? Yeah, I think I remember this correctly. <laughs> I think he was supposed to fight Truex, but Truex got injured, so he fought Angulo. No, they had Angulo the headbutt. Beat. They had the headbutt in that fight. Oh, right. The fight happened, but it ended. Yeah. Yeah, it ended in the first round. It looked like it was going to be a decent fight, too. And then headbutt, so that fight, you know, didn't quite happen. So um, Caleb Truex actually came back early this year. And he won a majority decision. So that tells you about the state of Caleb Truax. So what we have is two guys really towards the end of their careers that probably are still very frisky. And we can expect that this is going to be a hell of a war. I can't imagine Truax with the torn Achilles will be able to avoid Alfredo Angulo's power shots. Which could be very, very, very tricky for Truax to navigate all 10 rounds of this fight. 
So those are the fights this weekend. Uh, anything stick out for you? Um, I mean, the Jose Ramirez fight, I think, is the fight of the weekend. Um, it's it's sort of, I mean, I'll for sure watch the Fox card, but I mean, both of those just feel kind of like this is just meant to get Lara a little bit of visibility. Uh, you could definitely see, if he looks impressive here, him fighting the winner, winner of the Charlo Rosario fight at some point. You know, it's like he continues to be in the mix at 154. There's a little bit about just keeping him relevant in that division. Um, regarding the super middleweight fight, I had thought both of these guys individually were going to fight David Benavidez and Caleb Plant, um, you know, somewhere spread between the two of them. Uh, instead, I guess they wanted to make it, you know, go one step further on the tournament bracket and have the winner of this fight one, fight one of those guys. I mean, they're both at the end of their career. They're both guys who arguably shouldn't be fighting anymore. But look, if they want to fight each other and see if a legitimate uh, winner comes out of that and then have that guy fight Kale Planner, David Benavidez. Like, I'm okay with that. Something we talked about when David Benavidez fought was that both of those guys have relatively thin resumes. So I, I, I definitely wouldn't mind this being an eliminator for a fight against one of those guys. But, you know, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the significance is an eliminator to a fight that might never happen. You know, the, neither of these are huge fights. The, the Postal Ramirez fight, I think, is definitely worth watching. Ramirez is coming off the performance of his career last year against Maurice Hooker. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of eyes on him in that fight uh, this weekend. I think it's on ESPN Plus, so maybe not. Um, but well, I, <laughs> maybe not literally, but at least in terms uh, of boxing internet land. Right, which which we know has like very little connection to reality. But, you know, we enjoy it, so we'll roll with that. Uh, I, I'm definitely looking forward to the Angulo Chuix fight because I think it's just going to be one of those fights where it's just like eating uh, just the entire carton of ice cream. And the Jose Ramirez Victor Pulso fight, I'm not as high on. I think Ramirez is just going to steamroll. Actually, I think it's because I just don't like really care for Victor Pulso. Uh, no, that's not fair. Not that I don't care about Victor Pulso because he's a really nice guy. I've talked to him before. Um, but I just have never really liked watching him fight. You know what? It probably is this. I'll, we'll end the podcast on a story. So, um, on the night of Matisse and Polsto, I remember, or that day, I didn't know if I wanted to go to the fight. I had nothing to do that day. So at the last minute, I was just like, all right, I'll just buy some tickets. So I bought eight, actually, not some, I bought a ticket and I went to the fight by myself and um, this was, like, back before, like, I applied for credentials or I don't know. But it, or it, but it was certainly last minute, so I had no intention of going to the fight. So I roll over to the fight, and this is my second time seeing Matisse fight. And I'm like, yeah, Team Machine, you know, expecting Vic, uh, Lucas Matisse to get back to his winning ways and knock Victor Pulso out. And then Matisse, like, just, you know, folded in that fight. And I just remember, like, I just remember standing there and... You know, I wasn't that shocked by the result, but I remember standing there and just, it was one of those moments where I just kind of stepped back and I looked around and I observed the situation and I just looked at all the people booing and the way, the, the, the way people just immediately <laughs> got up and left. Like Matisse hadn't even been counted out yet and people were already walking out. Like it was kind of like that. Now I may be exaggerating well, a little bit he there. He got injured in the fight, and it was kind of anticlimactic because he just was kind of fading in a way, which was sort of I could imagine hard to understand as a viewer. Didn't understand that his eye was injured, you know. But anyway, continue. Right. I mean, 
even though stuff up is small, you still can't see that fine details to figure out like Matisse's eyes completely screwed up. And you, there's no monitors except for like right under the ring. So nobody, if you're sitting in the, in the, if you're not sitting really close to the ring, you can't really see those monitors to see replays. So, um, it was just one of those moments where like everyone just cleared out and I was like, wow, this is like, I've never seen this before. Like people usually at least hang around and they like sit in their chairs for just a little bit, but no, everybody just got up and left. Like, um, like somebody had came in the room and farted. So... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a wild night, and I guess that's why I don't like Victor Postal that much. Although, he, again, he is a very nice guy. Certainly, I met him uh, at the press conference before he fought Terrence Crawford. It was at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is a very, very nice hotel. Had very good food, very good dessert, um, and Victor Postal was a very nice guy. And Rayfield over here. Um yeah, it, um, I was still so new at the time to like covering things. I was like, "Am I supposed to eat this? Like, yeah, am I yeah. supposed to like? <laughs> am I just supposed to snack on this, or am I supposed to eat a full meal there?" And then I saw someone like just walk away with like a plate piled high, and, like another plate just with desserts. And I was like, "Oh, I see. I, I get the score here." Yeah, I, I personally, this is, we're getting. I mean, this is the end of the episode, right? But yeah, I mean, I always, uh, I, I, I always eat a full meal. I feel like just in terms of like those events can be exhausting. It It, it is actually helpful. I know we like to clown. Oh, for like sure. Media, it's helpful. Media guys just doing it for the free meal. But it, it's like, yeah, it's nice to be able to go there, eat a meal and then just do the work. Well, I mean, if you, you think know? about it, you get to a fight at like two o'clock and you're there at least two o'clock my time. Well, yeah, I'm I was there till say, like 11 at night. East Coast, but yeah, yeah. Like Wilder Fury, I get there at like three o'clock and I'm there until almost midnight. It, actually, that night, because um, you guys care so much about my life, um, I got to the fight around three, and I had only eaten like maybe something from Starbucks or something early in the daytime, and then I did not eat. You know, the, I was at the arena until like midnight I, or eleven. Went back to the hotel, recorded, went back to the arena. To, uh, to see a few people and I like didn't eat until like three o'clock that night it was so crazy oh no no I but I I wouldn't have eaten at all if not for the fact that they offered food for us otherwise I would have went you know half the day without eating which I'm sure is a very first world problem but you know I don't know how else to transition out of that other than to say thanks for listening if you enjoy our podcast you should rate and review it give it a good rating if you don't give us a five well, you know, you should just talk to us. Don't leave a bad rating. Instead, talk to us and let us know what you want to hear. We do this podcast uh, to entertain the, the listener. And if the listener wants different type of entertainment, let us know and we'll bring it on. Uh, we've actually, you know, we were having a conversation before the podcast. That we're coming up with thinking of ways to like kind of improve the podcast, different things we may want to try. If you got an idea, you can always hit us up uh, on Twitter, uh, Tom Cody SP. Uh, you can hit us at the Sunday underscore puncher account, which is our main account. That's probably the best one to reach us at. Or come to our Discord. And if you need to know how to do that, you should also hit us up on Twitter. That's probably just the best way to contact us. So thanks a lot for listening, Tom. Thanks for coming on. I know it's late on the sure, East Coast. always fun to be on. Can I can I give a quick personal note at the end? Yeah, go ahead. Very quick here. Yeah. I just I have what to say, Tom got to say here? Since the pandemic started, this has definitely been like the best I've felt in terms of mental state. Just, you know, like I, I was joking about the getting to go on a date night finally, but boxing is such a big part of that. I mean, it was like I got such a positive feeling doing the media call this week, like 
all the fighters on the call emphasized that they had like completely normal training camps, that it might be weird to fight without fans, but it wasn't really a big deal to them. Like I, I had asked because both of them are like big for the division in terms of, uh, you know, Porter, not in terms of his height, but, you know, just because he fought at 165 and then um, uh, Fundora because he has a gigantic frame. And they were like, no, no, no. Great, great camp. We're, we're all set. Good to go. Um, just, yeah, I mean, it's starting to feel like, um, you know, uh, we're getting back into the swing of things. You know, we had like three fight cards going on the same day. Like, it just feels like um, things are getting back into motion. I just, you know, as much as I enjoy boxing as a hobby, I mean, that that like, <laughs> you know, I would say had a, had an overall just positive impact on my mental state. So I'm just I'm happy for the state of boxing, happy for the state of at least in New York thing, things are, are doing well coronavirus wise. So I hope everyone else is doing well. But uh, I'm looking forward to when I remember back when the uh, Stephen S. Uh, when the showtime had the announcement of their schedule and it was like the summer series had been a bit of a mess, lots of positive coronavirus tests. And I, I have to say since that, that time things have gone quite well, very few fighters and uh, trainers have tested positive compared to earlier on. Uh, things have been going pretty smoothly. The shows have been good. It's weird to not have a crowd, but it's been rolling. So I, I'm just very much looking forward to the rest of the fight as the, the bigger fights are starting to come. The pay-per-views are going to start hitting yeah, looking forward to all of it. Yeah, for sure. This weekend did feel like we're, at least boxing-wise, we are back. And if you're following the NBA playoffs, you know, we just had some amazing games. I mean, Luka Doncic, my God. But, like, with all that said, Tom, we all know that that was all a veiled way for you to say you're so happy Dillian White got knocked out. <laughs> that is that is the exact right note to go out on. And yes, you did steal that I was going to say that as we signed off. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>